Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. All right, everyone, welcome back to Teeth and Titanium, episode 24. This is our August 2022 edition. Oscar, how's it going? Honestly, it's great. It's, it's a little bit weird not doing it in a different country now and doing oh, it I was kind of say. back in like my guest room here that I'm doing it. This is so lame. We're like yeah. back on Zoom. We're back in Toronto. This so is when not are we fun. taking a trip? Like when are we going to take another trip to do another <laughs> podcast? Exactly. So this is our first episode after our obviously our live episode in Iceland. What a fun time. We were really so appreciative that they gave us the opportunity. We had a nice big crowd and it was kind of nice because we pulled the audience and we had a good, healthy mix of loyal listeners, listeners, and like some people that had never really heard us before. So you could see like they were like credit to them. They came to see what it was about. Like they could have just left. That's what I was going to say. Like, honestly, it was a great experience for us. It was really fun. CMS to thank you for putting us out there. But thank you to the people who stayed who never heard us because they were like, it was at the end of a long day. They could have easily said, I'm going home. I'm going to get ready for dinner. But they, a lot of the audience stuck around. So I thought that was really nice of everybody. Definitely. And how did you feel? I mean, now we can look back to seeing how we felt it went. But at, I want to know for you, at the time when we started and we were doing it, how did you feel up there on stage? And how did you think it went? So now, yeah, you can look back and you'd be like, oh, maybe I would do something a little different. When I first was there, when we first saw this stage, I was like, oh, this is a little bit more impressive or a little bit more nerve wracking than I thought it was going to be because you saw how many seats were there. You saw how many, we were part of the audience listening to the lecture before. And so you knew how many people were in. Once you got to the front though, you can't really see people that well. You could only really see you and the guests we had up there and you you almost lose track of everything else. So it was just kind of like, again, I was just talking to my friend. So you forget about it. That's pretty good. I'm impressed because I will say one of the biggest compliments we got after we finished where people would tell us, you know, you guys just have a natural chemistry and comfort level on stage. Like they couldn't believe some of the cool things that I heard that I wanted to share was one person couldn't believe we didn't have a script. Like they, they were like, I don't understand. These guys don't have notes in front of them. They don't have a, a power. There's nothing in front of them. I'm watching them just do this. And there's no, and I said, well, listen, They're like you have this little tiny piece of paper. I said, yeah, because it just had bullet points. So we could kind of keep track of what we need to talk about and what the order is. But we really try and be as unscripted as possible because when you're unscripted, and you're just having a conversation, it does come across more natural. So they were, they loved our natural chemistry and they just felt that it, it really came across as on, on stage. I think that's also the benefit of actually being friends where people are wonder, are we truly friends? I think it is easier. Like if it's someone that I didn't know that well, it would be, a, I would feel more nerve wracking trying to have that conversation with you. Just like it's when we're having a conversation and we get to do it with in front of people and with really educated guests. And that's what makes it a lot easier for us. Definitely. And I will say, uh, for me, I had a kind of a different reaction to you. I, I was really nervous, but looking excited to it. Like I was really pumped for our live episode. It was something I wanted to do for so long and I wasn't sure how people would react. So I knew that I would know right away how it was going to go because I always dreamt of entering the live episode <laughs> and announcing like, like it being quiet in the yeah. room. So no one would really know. And then you're like live from Reykjavik, Iceland, and just having people like go wild and cheer. And they actually did it. They did it right yeah. away without so like, it's going to be fine. So. It's going to be fine. Oh, this is going to be fine. And then once we, and then I found I went through a second phase of nervousness because you and I were sitting at the front of these couches and I'm thinking, you know, we're just here to do a, a normal episode of our podcast. And a normal episode is 
we just talked. But I felt weird because you're following all these professional lectures and I'm sitting on a couch across from you and we're just talking about random yeah. things. I'm like, is yeah. this weird? Like, is this going to go well? And again, it's on a lecture like where it's not just people before us were nobodies. They were good, really good lecturers that were talking about very important topics. And we're like, hey, we're going to talk about whatever we want to talk about. Yeah, definitely. One thing I will say is that we brought up, you know, guests during the show, really liked our guests, really liked how everything went and, and credit to them, as you said, during the episode, because at least after 10 minutes, I felt like we kind of hit, hit our groove and it just felt like a normal episode to mm -hmm. me after the first 10 minutes. But then for them, not only, you know, they listen to the show, but they have to come up in front of an audience. So they're experiencing everything we're experiencing. Way harder. But they also don't have 22 they, episodes of yeah, practice. Yeah. No, no, it's way harder for them. Way harder. I will say Fritz came up at the end, as everyone knows, and kind of stole the show. He did amazing. He did amazing. Very professional, very, very professional takedown of me. Like, I was really oh. impressed at how good he, how well he did it. I will say, Oscar, obviously, I went back and listened to the live episodes. I'm sure you did. And I've listened to the Fritz segment a few times just because I find it actually hilarious. Yeah. And I just thought it was yeah. so well done. But you know how whenever you rewatch a TV show or re-listen to a song or re-listen to something, you pick up something kind of new and you're like, oh. I didn't realize that. Like before. I missed that little nuance of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I picked up something. So I've been listening multiple times, and I realized on the second or third time, I actually started listening to you, Oscar. Because obviously, I'm listening to me. I'm listening to Fritz mostly. But on a, on a fault, I'm listening to you, and all I'm hearing is while Fritz is talking and making fun of me, you are laughing hysterically, like uncontrolled, unmitigated laugh, like pure joy in are your you voice. That means are you surprised at that? Like, well, where's the loyalty? Couldn't <laughs> no. you have my back here? Like, no, where's like, the loyalty? I, I have your back all the time, except if you're getting destroyed and it's perfectly thought out. Like he clearly <laughs> mapped out what he was going to say. And I'm like, I got nothing. Like Wendell's my boy, but he is crushing it right now. Yeah. If anyone goes back and listens to Fritz's segment, all you hear in the background is Oscar just laughing. Just yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to bring that up. But no, listen, I, I can't blame you. And I really like that he did that. And I, I thought it was really well done. And everyone kind of came up to me afterward, you know, and said, Fritz really took you down. I said, listen, that's what we want. We want the controversy. We want the trash talk. Like, we love it. And his was legit too, right? Like, like he got, he thought it through. It was perfectly delivered. His accent was awesome. It was just perfect. Yeah, it was definitely really, really good. A nice thing about doing the episode live, obviously, is after we got to meet people and they would they would give us feedback. Or, and mostly, as I said, it was all positive feedback. You know, some people haven't reached out to us over email, but when you're at a conference, they just heard you, you're at events with them. People were coming up to us and they were saying, listen, I, I'm a listener. I listen to every episode. You know, I'm meeting people from London, Kevin Abazadeh. I'm meeting people from Montreal, Mark Duval. We're meeting all these different people that listen to every episode. They're telling us the speeds they listen at. They're telling us their favorite episodes. Like, it was just cool to like, meet all these different people that really enjoy the episodes. It was an awesome experience, I would say, for us mainly, because we got to experience it. But I do think everyone took it well, and it was exciting for them as well. Now, I will say, not all feedback can be positive, And that's normal. You know, if you do everything even perfectly, for example, I'm not saying we're perfect, but I'm saying if you did everything perfectly, I'd say still 5% of people will complain about something. We know about that in life and in residency and everything. And we're, what we're doing right now, Oscar, is we're starting off the show with you know, before we get into current events with some banter. And even during current events, we often have a lot of banter. You know, I love to bring up topics that are annoying me or, or things that I find funny. And I always want to hear your opinion or just banter with you. And a lot of people listen to the show and they enjoy the banter. They love our chemistry. They love our jokes. They love the way we talk. They, they always seem to relate to the kind of topics we discuss the conversation, about. conversation, yeah. And then a lot of surgeons, what they do is People are taking our recommendation. They're listening to the episodes on their drive, on their commutes, maybe at the gym. But a lot of people listen to us when they drive. 
And, you know, a lot of people live in major cities. So traffic is bad. You have these half an hour commutes, hour commutes. And a lot of people tell us, you know, we like to listen to your episode when it comes out and it, it kills the morning drive or the afternoon drive. Like they really enjoy it. But a byproduct of that is you have to remember a lot of our listeners now are in later stages of life. They have kids and maybe they're dropping their kids off at school uh, or soccer practice yeah. or they're driving yeah. home from the cottage. Car's full. The car's full. And sometimes these drives are long drives. They could be two hours long. So, you know, the surgeon's thinking this is the perfect time for me to listen. You know, kids, you can stay on your phone. You can do whatever you want. You can listen to your headphones. But I want to listen to this while I'm driving. So a byproduct of us doing the show and recommending people listen on their drive is that a lot of families are starting to listen. And we would meet, you know, <laughs> at the conference, surgeons' wives that would say, oh, you're, yeah, we've heard your episode <laughs> here and there. Like, he's always listening to you in the drive. And it was funny. But with that comes some people that maybe are listening to the background and are not appreciative. And I just want to call it one. I mean, I, if you oh. want to come at us, and if you want to come at us and insult us, I think it's fair that we mention you. And, you know, there's this young girl named Natasha. You know, she's in British Columbia. She's probably listening right now. and her constant commentary to her dad, Claudio, is that there's just too much banter. Wow. She's like, why are they bantering so much? Why are they talking so much? This, this entire saying, segment. to the point? Yeah. She's like, this entire segment could be summarized in two minutes. And these guys just keep talking to each other. It's a new generation. They don't know what's a good. <laughs> it's a new, you're you're going to go with that? The new generation? They don't have enough patience. She wants our podcast in the form of a 45-second TikTok. That's what I mean, right? She wants cold notes to be like, boom, 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 done here. Yeah. And have a dance to it. We're not doing that. So unfortunately, Natasha does not like the banter. But listen, Natasha, you're missing the point of the show. The point of the show in its essence is banter. Like people always talk about Seinfeld being such a revolutionary show because, you know, it was a show about nothing. That's Different like generation. Though. That's the problem. You're right. Yeah, I know. She obviously doesn't watch Seinfeld. But you know what? She got a so shout out of it. She got a shout out. And I hope, I hope Claudio enjoyed the shout out too, all the way out on the West Coast. But I just had to bring that up. You know, with notoriety and all these episodes, it does have some unintended consequences. Now, without further ado, let's jump out of our banter segment and let's just go into some current events. So Oscar, the first thing I wanted to talk about is I did notice something when it comes to the recent CAOMS conference in Iceland. The quality of... Canadian speakers is really, really ramping up. And what I mean by that is for the annual conference, you used to have to say, okay, let's find the two Canadians that are like really experts on this and this, and then let's Get fill it podium. with all these. Yeah, exactly. Fill up the podium with all these other people, international flying, the big names from everyone else. And I've noticed the percentage of Canadian speakers that can be invited on stage to talk in depth with proper training and proper That's experience impressive. and case volume. It's really, really going up. Like this event had a lot of Canadian speakers. One I would just throw out there, for example, is Clayton Davis. And that's, you know, we mentioned before how he's given a great talk, the webinar on arthroscopy. He's come to U of T and given that talk. He gave it at the CMS talk as well. But it's an example of a Canadian grad who went and did a fellowship in the US, is now lecturing on this, is actually doing this in his private practice. Very impressive. Is getting his case numbers up. Very impressive and good speaker. Fun guy, very super good material. Super nice guy too, like everything about him, yeah. Super, super nice. But what is nice is that that means, okay, you want to learn about TMJ arthroscopy? Here's a Canadian grad, Canadian surgeon that you can invite to talk about it. You don't need to fly someone in from Brazil no. or Europe yeah. or the States. Like he's right there. And, and it's not meant to discourage or saying, oh, like we don't want to invite older guests, but this is also a young guy who's going to be doing it for the next 15, 20, 25 years, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think it's it's really nice to have these 
Canadian speakers coming up. And I think as more and more people get this training and do fellowships, I think it's only going to increase over time. I think the quality of Canadian speakers and the opportunities that they'll get at these national conferences. I did kind of struggle at the conference in one aspect. I've always struggled with this, and I feel like it's something easily that I could just solve, but I've never just you know okay. sat down and actually tried now, to solve now it. Now I'm interested. Now I'm interested. What is it? I just I just feel like I don't know how to tie a tie properly. I just I'm just gonna throw that out there. I have That's... I only know I know one way to tie a tie, and it forms a knot, and it you know but slides you form, up and. Do you form like that one sided knot, like the one you do when you're one... in high school? Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, <laughs> I can picture it right now. Everyone's <laughs> like, do you do a half Windsor or a full Windsor? It's like I don't know how to do either. I just have the one way. You're like, I know how to way- drive to Windsor. That's all I know about Windsor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just feel like a lot of my appearance when I'm wearing a suit, you know, is based on your tie. Yeah. And I'm just really disappointed every time I look at the way I tie a tie. So. It's something I want to improve. I'm sure people will say just go on YouTube, but half Windsor, full Windsor. Like, what do you do? You know how to tie a tie? Like, what are you supposed to do? So again, I don't know by the names, but I can pretty much tie most tie knots. Like, my dad was a big suit guy growing up, so I'm really good at it. Like, I did my well when I got married, I didn't wear a tie or a bow tie. But so, like, my buddy for his wedding, I tied his. My other buddy for his wedding, I tied his tie knot. So, like, yeah, that's not an issue I have at all. So how are you choosing, uh, like, first of all, wow, that you know multiple knots, but if you know multiple knots, how are you choosing which one? Is it, is it like for an occasion or? Yeah, like exactly. Some things are more formal. And again, I don't know the names at all because like my parents are South American. We didn't call them by their English names at all. But yeah, my dad would just teach me. But so it's, it's one based on the occasion, but two based on the kind of dress shirt you were wearing, right? Like how high your collar is, how big the collar is. So that, that would adjust what? the kind of knot. <laughs> I didn't even know dress shirts came with different sizes yeah. of collars. Look at this. Wow! Yeah, okay. so you, you got to YouTube this. That should be, you know what? That should be a recommendation no. I don't have to YouTube. You. I just realized. I just have to get you to teach me. Why don't I go to YouTube? You sound no, like you're I'm an gonna, expert. I'm going to teach you in Spanish, so it's not going to go well for you. <laughs> <laughs> the half Windsor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe maybe next time we're recording live, I'll bring a tie with me. We'll see what yeah. happens. I did think Iceland kind of spoiled some people because for a lot of people, it was their first conference that they went to. It's not fair. And it's I mean, never going it, to. It's never going to be as good. I mean, like, come on, you can't, your no, no. first conference is Iceland. You have to realize it's like one of the best conferences ever. They should like, retire conferences. Come... Like they should never go again to another conference. No, no, Oscar, Oscar. We want them to come every year to the CAOMS annual conference. They okay? should never like, go stop. again expecting it to be better. They should always still go though. That's there you go. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. that's a better part. That's a better party line there. Yeah. So I, I think it was really great. And what's nice is they organized it beautifully where, you have these things to do other than the lectures. So you have the lectures, but then they have dinners on an island, the dinners in a museum, go to a museum and learn about the, the stars in the sky and the northern lights and how they're formed. Like it was just really, really nice. And then you get to go to the Blue Lagoon and go to the spot. Like I like that they didn't pretend that, you know, this is just a conference in Iceland. They acknowledge, no, we're also going to they, Iceland they, they to see acknowledge Iceland. the country. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. We want to see Iceland. Like that's obviously part of the reason. So, Really, really good conference. And I think people really enjoyed it. But as you said, you can't expect it to be that amazing every time. I, I think the conferences are always super fun, but it can't be that great every single time. People need to realize that. The last major current event I wanted to talk about before we get to fan mail is on a previous episode, we had talked about how this guy Brad had reached out to us and wanted to be our producer. And we read out on the next episode and, and we mm-hmm. said, well... What is a producer? We don't I, I know. Like, I don't know what that means. I really don't know. But oh, we know what that means. Yeah, what he's going to do is executive producer is going to be monetary. He's going to pay us. He's yeah, because we have no money. We have a sponsor. Yeah, <laughs> no money has been given. But yeah. 
we called up Brad and said, listen, if you want to be our producer, like send us an email. Like, what does that mean? What would you actually do and what would be involved? And we said this half in jest, but half like true, because we were like, man, this is a lot of work. We're kind of getting buried with it. It's, it's you know, our lives are getting yeah. busier and busier. As I announced last episode, I have a second kid on the way in November. So like, spoiler alert for everyone. But once the second kid hits, there might be a month without an episode. Like people need to we understand. We know there's a month without an episode. Yeah, we know. It's <laughs> like at be some me. point. Yeah. I, yeah. Unless you want an episode of me just like reading nursery rhymes or something like yeah. that. But, you know, we're <laughs> going to have to take a break at some point here. So I do find it getting, you know, more and more tiring with all the behind the scenes work. So it was half in jest, but half I was like, yo, mm-hmm. what is a producer? What does that mean? Never heard from the guy. And we talked about this, how we never heard from him and he ghosted us and he's ignoring us. So fast forward like a month or two and I'm at my uh, Gil reunion and obviously Brad's there because I actually do know Brad outside of this podcast. Nice guy. But I told Brad, what's up, man? We called you out. You never responded. And Brad actually told me, dude, I reached out to you to be your producer. You never got back to me. You never told me yes or no. You never told me anything. So I boycotted. He actually boycotted the podcast. He's like, I'm never listening. You know what? I don't even blame him. I don't blame him either yeah, because yeah. we were kind of in his mind. We were rude. I would have done the same thing. I'd be like these, like these guys are losers. I don't want to talk to them. Yeah, because he reached yeah. out to us. He sent us an email, like volunteering his time, I guess, and yeah. we like didn't respond because my we idea was we'll respond him. on. Yeah, we'll respond on the podcast. He'll listen. It'll be funny. Hey, miscommunication. Miscommunication. So then I told him. I said, "No, man. We talked to you the next episode." He's like, "Really?" I I stopped and I said, "Dude, you gotta catch up." So I was I was thinking, okay, is he actually gonna catch up? So then you know the weekend was fun. We all hung out. So then he told me, you know, he lives in New York, so he's driving back to to the state of New York, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna start catching up." So he started at the episode. He's his boycott ended. Yeah, yeah. He started listening and he caught up on all the episodes. Yeah, exactly. And he sent us an email, and he basically said, "I want to be the producer." And what that would involve is I want to help you on all the back end stuff. I'm really good at organization. I'm really good at getting the scut work done. Like I want to make it smoother, more consistent, and just like an easier process for you too. He's like, I don't want to be on the show. I'm in the background. I'm hiding in the background. Like I just want to make everything around the episode easier. So I said, Wow, okay. So this like what would amazing. that involve? We're like, this sounds like exactly what we need. So then he listed like seven to ten things that he could help us with, you know, finding articles, getting the schedule done, publishing on time, doing coordinating like with all guests. these different yeah, coordinating with guests, all these different things that we struggle with and takes, you know, so much, so much time. So he said, Listen, Brad, we're gonna give you a test episode. And and for those people listening to this episode and saying, Wow, this episode's going really well so far. I'm really enjoying it. Well, this is Brad's first episode being the producer. And I will say Brad's amazing. So far, it's pretty impressive. I mean. He coordinated with our guests to get him on. And, and I mean, spoiler alert, our guest is Dr. Michelle Alakim from McGill, who you'll hear from later. And we basically gave him our available dates. And then we signed off. He talked to Michelle. He told them the dates. He found the date. He found the time. He just told us, okay, confirmed. This date, this time. One thing that I thought was really funny was today, <laughs> we got the group text from Brad that said, oh, he created a group. For yeah, us, so we can group. all yeah, communicate that was effectively. Nice too. Everything was like in the one place. Like I thought that was really useful. Yeah. Then what was really awesome is he sent the text message today saying, confirmed with Alakim, we're on for 815. And we were made like, it sound oh. legit. I was like, yes. It wasn't sound legit. It was just like, I never thought to confirm again with the guest today. Yeah. We've just been showing up hoping <laughs> that in the Zoom corner, the person will show up there. Like we've never I actually said. I show up hoping you're going to show up sometimes. I'm like, let's see if Wendell's <laughs> yeah. coming today or is he baby duty? So yeah. And, we, and we've been burned in the past. I mean, no names, yeah. obviously, but we've been burned in the past where we showed up and 
guest the did not guest show was up. not there. <laughs> the no, but so, there. so I will say that email Brad sent us was the best email anyone could have because he has been unbelievable so far. Yeah, so huge shout out to Brad. Welcome to the team. Well, it's a big welcome to the team because we've been two for yeah. 23 episodes. In our 24th episode. Now we're introducing a third person. Now, let's be real. We always keep it real in this podcast. Brad's on probation. He's not hired. You know, he's not an executive member. He's on probation. How many episodes do we have to do before we, he's like officially inaugurated? With me, he's already inaugurated. I'm, well, I'm, I'm way, I'm, I'm way more lenient than you are. You're way more lenient. Yeah, because listen, too, you're I too thought, demanding. I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna, gonna no, to epi- Brad. I'm going to private text Brad <laughs> and tell him he's fine. No, his first episode is phenomenal. You don't just give them the keys to the kingdom and hope. Okay, what, fine. If, what if, if next just, episode? That's why. If he drops it completely next time where we have no guests or nothing, then I'll be like, okay, Brad, you're fine. <laughs> Quickly. But if he gets two in a row, he's got my vote already. No, I got to do more than two. What are we? We're episode 24 today. Okay. If we get to episode 30 and <laughs> the quality is still, yeah, six. If we get six episodes of quality, if we get to episode 30, you're not going to get to still... six episodes. You're going to be on your pat leave by then. That's not fair to Brad. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we'll see how it goes. But uh, I'm reserving okay. judgment for now. And we'll okay. and we'll let our audience also kind of weigh in as to what they think as well and how things. But honestly, 95% of what he does is on the back end. And it makes say. lives way yeah. easier. So thanks to I Brad. Really, really appreciate it. If you want to reach out to Brad, he has the same email now. He's centralized everything. So it's still teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. And what's nice is... Give him fan mail think, too. Yeah, fan mail, or if you want to be a guest, or if you want to suggest a guest. He's the guy. He's the guy, because what he can do now is you can suggest guests or say you want to come on, and he'll coordinate with you. He'll see what you can talk about your topics. He can reach out scheduling-wise. Like It's just it's opened up our podcast to, I feel like, a much wider audience. Or, or he'll ignore you for us, which is great, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he'll screen you if you're a bad guest, but yeah. we didn't want to say it. All right, so th- thanks to Brad. We really appreciate his work. Now, let's move on to fan mail. So, Oscar, fan mail is one of my most favorite parts of the podcast. Like, I love fan mail. I love yeah. when people email in. I think it's always fun to read it and connect with our listeners. Do you love fan mail as much as I do? Honestly, I would say it is probably my favorite part that we do because you get to see what people are thinking of our podcast. You get to kind of understand why they listen or how we're helping them. So I really enjoy it. Awesome. So we have a bunch of fan mail this time. So our first one goes like this. Hi, Dr. Ma- Dr. Mascarenas and Dr. Jalmeo. I recently came across your podcast and I binge listened to... Oh, I binge listened to many of the episodes. I was about to be like huge props because I thought he said I binge listened to all of them. Many. Well, still, many. still good. Okay. Yeah, many is quite a few, I guess. Yeah. I graduated from York University. Shout out to York U where we both went. Yeah. And that's my undergrad actually, but his degree is kinesiology. That's my degree. My oh, undergrad degree. Wow. So you're yeah. really connecting with this guy. Yeah. I graduated from York University with the degree in kinesiology last summer and I will be applying this year to dental school. So wow. So he's He's an early listener, so he gets even more earlier Because we had a lot of dental students, but this is like pre-dental students, so yeah. pretty impressive. I'm far out from learning about the various facets of dental surgery, but I wanted to broaden my knowledge of dentistry and its specialties after my younger sister huh. had undergone treatment by an OMFS and orthodontist. Sounds like she had maybe orthodontic surgery yeah. and exposed a bond or something yeah. like that. It is exciting to listen to your podcast as you provide unique perspectives in a light conversational manner. See? Banter. He likes the banter. It's all about the banter. <laughs> While also giving insight into the field. I look forward to listening to more in the future. Once again, more in the future. It's not like I look well, forward to listening to all future well, episodes. I mean, well, I know I'm being picky. Future, you know, yeah, like you're being too picky because you just talked about there's going to be more episodes in the future. I don't, uh, yeah, that's yeah. fine. Semantics. Um, yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm really obsessed with semantics, I guess. And learn all that I can from your knowledge and expertise. Regards, Akshar. Really nice. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Super, yeah. super nice. Thanks for reaching out and best of luck with your dental school application. We're both your Q grads. You have questions about you, how we did or what we, how we applied or anything, ask away because I'm hoping you For sure. Well. Stressful time, obviously, applying to dental oh, school, but once you get sure. in, it's just one of the best feelings. And then obviously, super stressful time applying to oral surgery, but once you get in, one of the best yeah. feelings as well. All right, next up, we have fan mail from someone that you might know quite well. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you read the next one? So Oscar and Wendell, loving the podcast, guys. I told Oscar it makes the three-hour drive to the cottage fly by. And I used to hate that drive. Wendell, I don't know if, if we've ever met in person, maybe at some conference during residency, but you were at Western with my brother, uh, Adele, for GPR back in the day. He now works in Waterloo as a general. Hopefully, we can all hang out at some point. I have not been listening to the podcast in order, but rather choose here and there based on the title and what piques my interest. I probably listen to about 10 overall and will continue to knock them down. I'll comment about a couple of recent ones I listened to. Regarding the discussion about topic anesthesia application, I use it pretty much every time, mostly for any possible placebo effect. Because of the one or two times that a patient says, wait, aren't you going to use that jelly? Or when a patient was describing a dentist they did not like and said something to the effect, he didn't even use the topic of jelly. Can you believe that? I really enjoyed the Ben Felix episode, super relevant as I am in the process of switching from a high fee active management account to a low fee index fund account. However, the index fund portfolio manager still reallocates the index funds based on the countries and geopolitical situations. So kind of active management of index funds. My all-in fee will be about 0.6, including financial planning compared to around two previously. Anyways, thanks again for the podcast. Keep it up, Omar. So how do you know Omar, Oscar? So Omar is, when I got hired on a crest and when I graduated, he was also hired as, an, as a brand new associate. So we both graduated in 2019, started working at, crest, at Crescent as brand new associates. And I become really close with Omar. He's an awesome guy, awesome surgeon, super lucky to have met him and worked with him the first three years. It's made my experience just way easier in private practice. We've talked about how having people around that you can talk to matters. It's hard when you join a practice of five or six or seven other super talented, well-established surgeons that everyone knows in the community, like Dr. Ranish, Dr. Rittenberg, Dr. Caminiti. And then you're the low man on the total pole because some of the questions they just won't relate to anymore in, their, in this point in their career. So having a guy like Omar, who was at the start of his career too, was super beneficial to me. Just all around, really, really nice guy. That's awesome. Yeah. So Omar, we've, we, I agree. We've never met. I've heard a ton about you from Oscar. It's a shame that he's never organized something for the three of us. Yeah, that's on out. me. So actually, that's completely on me because he always said, let's go for dinner. Yeah. Yeah, it's com- completely on you. So Oscar will buy us both dinner sometime. Never um, said that. No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he never said that. I just kind of added that. And yeah, of course, I know your brother, Adil. We did our GPR back today, Wednesday. We, we got along great, as I'm sure you and I would as well. And we had a lot of great times. So pumped uh, that you listen to the podcast, that you've been enjoying it. Regarding what you said, that's actually pretty much the exact same reason I use topical. Yeah. And that's what I kind of said during that episode, which is that for me, it's placebo effect. And also patients, I've had two patients, like exactly what you said, I've had two patients say those exact same words, which one was, you're going to use the topical, right? Or the jelly, right? And the other one said, yeah, the dentist didn't even... Actually, the patient said, yeah, the previous dentist didn't even use a topical, so I can tell you care more. So I guess patients are picking up on this. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, for all my locals, I use it every single time and uh, for the same reasons you do. Regarding the Ben Felix episodes, yeah, you know, they're, they're extremely, extremely, extremely popular. They're popular to the level that actually Oscar and I, and now with Brad, we're actually looking at a future episode where we can bring in another kind of guest from a non-academic topic, like mm-hmm. a lifestyle topic or a retirement plan topic or time, you know, like a, a lifestyle it's just topic. It's useful, though. Super, super useful. I'm glad you found it helpful. I'm glad you are kind of switching your accounts. You know, 2% is ridiculous for a fee. Yeah. I will tell you right now, that's, you know, it's complete robbery. And 
most people will be around that 2% mark, which is just mm-hmm. absolutely insane. Index funds definitely are the way to go. Low fee index funds. Just to be real, I don't love this whole reallocating based on countries and geopolitical situations. That sounds kind of active management to me, which kind of defeats the whole purpose. But what I would say is, listen, if your fee went down from 2%, from 2 to 0.6%, you're, that means you're making 1.4% more money every single year. For doing nothing. Regard For doing nothing. So yeah. you're, you're, you're in the right direction. And if it's a guy you trust and a guy you like or a female you like, then more power to you. But really, really glad you, you got benefit from the episode. And that's why we do those lifestyle episodes is we want people to benefit and just get kind of a more broader perspective of things outside of oral surgery. Okay, our last fan mail is from Marco Caminiti. He says, hi, guys. I just wanted to give you a shout out and kudos to the excellent Teeth and Titanium I just listened to on my hike. I wanted to share that I was really impressed with Simon. And in fact, midway through my hike, I started to take notes and searching the web. Keep up the good work. <laughs> he's, so he's Simon awesome. was like a dream guest for oh. Marco. I mean, you know, yeah. Marco is obviously in academics, but he loves research. He's involved in that. And Simon, the way he articulates things and what he does for residency, was amazing. residency program. He was we just, got a lot of so positive with regards to Simon. Yeah, people, people really, really like Simon. So... Kudos to him. And, and listen, you made Marco Kennedy stop his hike. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and send a text during his hike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Shout out to Dr. C for that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So thanks to everyone for the fan mail. We really appreciate it. We love hearing from everyone. All right, Oscar, that ends our current events section. Next up, we have our guest interview with Dr. Michelle Alakim. This was based on obviously a personal relationship, but more so based on a lecture that I've seen him give multiple times that I consider one of the best lectures I've ever heard. And it's on premillennial lesions. Mm -hmm. If anyone's ever heard it before, they'll definitely remember it. You know, sometimes he calls it the white spot because you're trying to figure out, you know, white spot, red spot, Mm -hmm. what do I do? Things like that. And he's just such a clear communicator. He's funny and he uses evidence. We, you know, we love people that use evidence in their lectures. We don't want the, in my opinion, they do this. In my opinion, you know, we want, you know, case numbers, evidence, outcomes, before and after photos, show us why, show us results. So we wanted to have him on for a long, long time. And And uh, we got it on the books. Brad coordinated for (laughs) us. We got it on the books. And uh, I'm just, was so looking forward to this interview. And I think people will really benefit it from it. So without further ado, let's jump into our guest interview with Dr. Michelle L. Hakim. Well, without further ado, welcome to the podcast. We have Dr. Michelle L. Hakim hailing from Montreal. So Michelle, obviously, we know each other. You're meeting Oscar for the first time tonight, even though you've heard his voice many times before. But For those that don't know you very well, can you start off by introducing yourself to the audience and telling us a little bit more about you? Uh, Well, first, hello, Teeth and Titanium. Nice to meet you both, Wendell and Oscar. It's always a pleasure. Well, I'm Michelle Hakim. As you said, I am an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. I work at McGill University. I have a subspecialty in oncology and microvascular reconstruction, and I have also a private practice in Montreal. Awesome. And what about your training? Where did you do your, your training before you started all this? So, yeah, my training was a little bit special. I started, as everybody probably, in dentistry first. Then I did a, an oral surgery program at McGill. It was a four-year program at the time. I finished in 2003. Then I decided to do my medical degree because I was interested in pursuing a fellowship in oncology and reconstruction. So I did my medical degree the full four years finished in 2007. 
and did a fellowship in Baltimore at the University of Maryland Medical Center with Dr. Bob Ward and finished my fellowship in 2008. Yeah, so that's impressive. He kind of underrepresented them with that first intro, which was really small. He left out that entire <laughs> amazingness, <laughs> which was the second <laughs> part there. Yeah, he's quite humble. Yeah, I could see that just from that first little intro. Wendell, he's the second person that knows you pretty well that we've had on the show. And so when Nick McCool came on, he spent about 90% of the time making fun of you, which I was super happy about, and then 10% on content. Michelle, are you going to have a similar ratio to him or are you going to be a little bit more friendly to Wendell? Well, I guess I told Wendell when I met him last time, you know, I, I'll answer only five questions, scientific questions, and only one personal. So I'll make fun of him only uh, one time out of five, if you want. Okay. So, so it's a better ratio for Wendell. This That's time, it. Yeah. Just for Wendell. Better ratio. Exactly. Well, what's funny is one nice thing about the podcast is we get to bring on guests, obviously. And Oscar would tell me about all these people at Toronto because he did the residency there. But because now I'm working in Toronto, I've met them. And so I've had more of those. Oh, this is the guy that Oscar's always talked about experiences, mostly in person at meetings, at conference, working together on call. Whereas for Oscar, he's like slowly meeting some of my staff over this podcast, it's over it's Zoom. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But I did laugh because, you know, he's met Shahadi. Now he's met McCool. And McCool was just ripping on me the whole time. But he can do that in jazz because, you know, we're friends. And what's funny about Michelle is, Michelle used to rip on me when I was in residency saying, oh, I bet you'd rather be with uh, Nick uh, today in the <laughs> OR, huh? You, That's yeah. it. Oh, you want to be with... <laughs> I, I might have been jealous. That's why. <laughs> yeah. You used to get jealous of us. But what changes is usually when you're a chief resident, you actually start to get operating with you more. And that's not because you only want chief residents. It's actually the opposite where the chief resident who makes the schedule wants to operate with you more and more. So they keep, they keep choosing your ORs. Which means the seniors are waiting to become a chief so then they can choose you for their OR. So it's actually a, a huge hey, that's compliment. That's a huge compliment. I was about to say, that's a huge compliment to a staff. If a chief wants to go to an OR, because you get to choose at that point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can tell in all programs, kind of, as you kind of go through the program, you want to make sure you work with all the staff, you know, equally. So if sure you have a chief you and you want to... Sure you do. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, that's what I'm maintaining. Yeah. <laughs> Oscar, might, Oscar might have a different opinion. I have to say, I was lucky to always operate with the chiefs, you know. They come with some experience and then I feel like, uh, well, it's good. <laughs> Much easier for me. Yeah, it does but make it easier great. for you, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember when I was a, a senior, I was in R5 and we were doing orthonathic and I did a BSSO with you, Michelle, and I finished my cut, we finished my split and you said, ah, not too bad for a junior resident. And I said, <laughs> I'm, I said, Michelle, I'm, uh, or I said, well, that time I said, Dr. Alakim, I'm a senior resident. And you said, oh, okay. <laughs> the only way you can go is up then. You can only go up from here. You not too bad for a junior resident. <laughs> Not too bad for a junior. I don't know why I'm bringing up these stories where he made fun of me. I mean, he said he's not going to. Why am I bringing up these stories? You're making fun of yourself. Here we go. <laughs> exactly. Well, okay. Let's let's turn the tables now. Let's let's make fun of someone else. So obviously, before we get into the meat and potatoes, this, we have to address the elephant in the room, which is hashtag Morrisgate. You know, this was brought up by Miller, and then you, you're a loyal listener. Like our, our listeners should know. Like you, from day one, have listened to the podcast. You listen like within a few days of it coming out. You give feedback. Back in the day when we started, I had about three months left of residency. So we would talk about it in the OR. Since I graduated, residents will message me saying, Elakim was talking about teeth and titanium in the OR, or he brought up this. Like, we know you're a loyal listener. We really appreciate that. So you obviously heard about, you know, this Morris conversation and you kind of reached out saying, you know, 
I was one of the founders of Moore's and I'm the only one doing head and neck oncology. So you're really a pioneer in not only Canadian Moore's, but head and neck oncology. Like until now, there's four people at McGill that are doing these flap surgeries and resections and benign pathology oncology. But that was very recently. If you rewind three or four years, there was two people, you and McCool. You go back, I don't know, whatever, eight years, nine years, 10 years. It was literally just you. That's impressive. In Canada. Yeah, it's impressive. So you you have to tell people like more about Moore's, what, what it is, what you're doing. And then how did this happen? Like you need to tell us in detail. How did you become the guy in Canada as an oral surgeon doing head and neck oncology? Well, obviously I didn't plan to be the guy in Canada. I think it started with, with a dream. When I was in my residency, we were doing lots of orthognathic cases. We we're doing lots of wisdom teeth, implants, stuff like this. But I always felt that you know, I want to do something to treat a disease. You know, when you're doing wisdom teeth, it's more for prevention that you're treating these patients. When you're doing orthognathic surgery, it's to improve their faces, their jaw. But people can live, like you can live with a class two malocclusion or class three. It's not, you're not, you're not going to die. When you treat an infection, for example, you have to treat the patient, although, or the patient can have problems after. He can die, he can, you know, he can have lots of problems. So for me, whenever I would see a pathology at that time, I would say like, I'd like to treat these cases, a cancer patient, a, you know, head and, neck, head and neck cancer, reconstruction, stuff like this. And then we weren't doing these cases when I was resident. So I found that this is part of our specialty and then we should be involved more in it. During my fourth year, uh, my fourth year of residency, I did a fellowship in Glasgow with people from England. Obviously there, as you know, they, they have a full scope of oral surgery. So they do everything from A to Z. So I worked with Mr. John Devine. Over there, they call them Mr. You know, when you're a surgeon. So I worked with Mr. John Devine and then I saw what they were doing as oncology. And when I came back to McGill, it was for me, I was sure like, this is what I want to do. It's really what I, I always seen myself doing. So I went and I saw my program director at the time, Dr. Tim Head, and I told him, look, this is what interests me. I'd like to do head and neck oncology and I'd like to be able to do it at McGill if possible. And he goes, look, Michelle, I'm here. I'm ready to help you if you want to do it. We'll do everything possible to get you in this, uh, on this road. So we started by applying to medical school first because I spoke to people in the United States to see if I can do a fellowship without doing my medical degree. And then they said, no, I mean, it's almost impossible. You have to have your medical degree. And this is how I applied to medical school. I did my medical degree, and then I applied after that to do my fellowship in head and neck oncology. I was obviously accepted at the University of Maryland Medical Center with Dr. Bob Ward, who was the program director or the chairman at the time. And I did my fellowship there, and then I came back. I became program director at McGill. And I have to say, when I came back, obviously being program director at McGill helped me a little bit from a, if you want, political point of view, because you have some responsibility, you take care of the program, you're involved with residents. And then I wanted to start my oncology practice. So obviously there has been probably some issues with other specialties like ENT and plastic surgery. Is it something that we should do, we should not do? But the fact that I would say the stars were aligned I, and I was able to start, there was a need, I think. I was the right person maybe at the right time. And then I was able to start that oncology practice at McGill back in 2008. 
The first case we did for you guys to, I don't know if you remember, probably none of you was there, was a, an amyloblastoma that we resected and then reconstructed it with a free flap, a free flap. And then the second case was an oncology case that I did with one of my colleagues in ENT. And then from then, you know, cases started to come in through our department. I had, I lectured a lot to dentists and to dental hygienists in Quebec. And then I started to get more and more referral for these cases. And we built the, the practice of oncology in our department. So you had to put in the work. You had to, you had to go lecture about it. You had to, because as you said, all the dentists, all the hygienists, even all the oral surgeons that are in the Montreal area. It's an untapped they're market. Gonna, yeah, they're going to see cancer all the time, but they're not going to think, oh, I'll send to Michelle, who I know and I like. They're going to say, oh, he doesn't, no one does that. I have to send it to this person or this person. So did you make an active point of really trying to spread the news that, hey, listen, I'm trying to build this part of my practice? Yeah, definitely. I did lecture a lot. I lectured a lot. I did lots of a few lectures on oncology. There was one lecture that I had built with one of my colleagues, Dr. Adel Kosman, on oral medicine, which I, which kind of we we built the lecture for dentists, where we go through different steps of you know the etiology, the biology of cancer, the histology, clinical presentation, management, and all this. And it's a course that we still give right now. Actually, we gave it last year for the Journée de l'Ordre des Dentistes du Québec. So I did lots of lecturing, and then I also gave a couple of lectures to our Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery Association in Quebec. And I have to say that our association was very supportive. The oral surgery community was very supportive to me in my practice, and they had referred to me, you know, cases to treat either blind pathology or cancer cases. And this is how we started to get more and more cases in our department. And I had to build relations, you know, with ENT department, with the radiation oncology department, medical oncology department. And slowly the practice became, you know, busier and busier. And I couldn't, if you want, handle it by myself. And this is when we, I started looking for another surgeon. And this is when Dr. Nick McCool came in 2013 and he joined me. So at that time, we became a unit with two surgeons. So we became really a unit instead of being only a solo practice of one surgeon. Then we were like a real unit where you have two surgeons helping each other. Which was a big game changer because you could do recession and flap, two team approach, same time, only oral surgery residents, only oral surgeons. I think that's something yeah, that's that people a huge don't really understand. Right is that when, when we're talking about at McGill, you know, we do oncology, it was, you know, at the resection, neck dissection, it's you plus, let's say, a, a senior and a junior. And then at the leg, doing a fibula, it's Nick McCool, a senior and a junior. Like it, it's, and then remember, we'd have dental students that would come rotate with us and saying, where, where is the, where is the surgeon? Where is the ENT? Where is the plastic? Like, where, where is the head and neck? I were like, you're looking at it. We're the team. And they were shocked. And so, Michelle, like getting Nick on board for sure, I guess, would relieve some stress and pressure on you being the sole guy. And so you said you were you got pushback from ENT and from plastics. Did you get any pushback from other oral surgeons in the community of why you were doing it? I didn't feel that, especially in Quebec. I felt more support from our oral surgery community. I have to be honest. It was great also from the association, which helped me a lot, you know, from the executive of the association at the time. They helped me a lot also to get codes to be able to bill for these procedures. As you know, we are in a public health system in Canada, so we bill usually the government for whatever we do. So then when I started, I didn't have 
uh, all the oncology code that we have now. And then the association has been very supportive in that. So shout outs to them, actually, to all the responsible of the association, the presidents, vice presidents that came through these years. And then they helped me a lot uh, in these codes. And I think it's great. So you had to bring the codes over from the medical side to the, the dental side so that you could actually, because you're right, if you don't, exactly. we all know in, in the I hospital, you don't have a code, you can't bill for it. Yeah. You can't bill for it. Yeah. Exactly. You could bill for, at the beginning, I was billing sometimes like the complex surgery code because we had a complex <laughs> surgery code. Sometimes, you know, you would do a neck dissection, you build for a submandibular gland removal, which is nothing compared to a neck dissection. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> oh my God. you know, you can always manage things. But uh, obviously, yeah, you need the uh, real codes. And that took some time. And then there has been some political battle over that where the ENT Association had tried to stop us from getting these codes. You know, they went up to the ministry and all the stuff. But things get resolved. We had a good support and I'm very proud of what the association did for us as McGill oral surgeon and as an oral surgeon in general, because these codes are not only for us, they are good for all the Quebec community and hopefully uh, it will spread over to other parts of Canada. And honestly though, Michelle, just hearing the amount of effort that you must have put in at the beginning of your career just gets me, it's so impressive and it's tiring just to imagine how much you did. So how did you find work-life balance when you were achieving these professional goals? What worked for you and would you change anything if you could go back and do it? Obviously, it was very stressful at the beginning, I would say, especially when you're someone that's starting something by yourself. I remember the first flap I did, the same flap I just mentioned, the amyloblastoma flap. You know, after I finished the flap, uh, probably we finished late that day. We were probably around 10 o'clock at night when the flap was finished. And then I stayed up almost all night. You know, I, I was thinking, is this flap going to go down? What's going to happen? The residents, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to monitor these flaps. The second day I was there, you know, rounding on these patients, rounding probably twice a day like a resident uh, because the residents didn't have the experience at the time. So, yes, it took lots of sacrifice and especially also stress because you don't have a senior surgeon. You know, like now, if I think about the new oral surgeon that we hired, you know, Jordan and uh, Hyder, if they have a question, they come and ask me or ask Nick about, okay, the flap is, something's happening. Can you help me? I didn't have that support at the beginning. So it takes lots of takes lots of stress and it takes a, away from your life, maybe with your family, because you're thinking about your flap all night. You're thinking the second day you want to go around on these patients. But you have to always find a balance. So would I have changed something in that? For sure. I mean, someone had to start it. So that I couldn't change anything with it. Obviously, now we try to make it easier for the ones that are coming in. One thing that I would probably, and I always thought of that it might have helped me when I started my practice, I was only part-time at McGill. At that time, I was three days at McGill and two days in private office. And this is probably the part that I would have changed where I would probably have preferred to be full-time at McGill. I don't know if from a financial point of view, it would have been better for me, honestly, but from managing your life, your personal life and managing, you know, I, you know, being focused on one thing, I think being like full time in the hospital would have probably been easier. Yeah, because it's, it's all the bureaucratic work on the sides and the paperwork and the meetings and the emails they have to catch up on, especially if you're starting kind of a, a an area of the department from scratch. Exactly. Exactly. And this is what I tried also to do. And I always think it is something that we would be ideal for the uh, for our academic institutions to have full-time people 
But the problem, the reality is the financial doesn't follow in our institutions, especially in Canada. And we have always to rely on the private office to kind of supplement our income, uh, which is unfortunate again, like I've said it probably uh, three, four times. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the way anyway, and we have to live with it. Yeah. Well, you're a good person to talk about with our next question, which is going to be on four-year versus six-year programs for multiple reasons. One, you did a four-year program. And then you had this dream of doing head and neck oncology. And they said, listen, you have to go do med school. So then you had to go do four years of medicine. Nowadays, we're lucky. You know, we have six-year programs. So you can get the MD with just an extra two years of schooling rather than four. As Oscar mentioned, the stuff you had to go through, like, if, for example, I love orthopedic surgeries, you know. But if someone were to tell me right now, okay, you finished your oral surgery. you got to start this. You're ready to work. You're going to do four more years of something and then a fellowship then, before yeah. you're even allowed to do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Right. And then you have to start it because no yeah, one else is doing break this at into all. You the profession because no one's doing that. You have that. to invent yeah. codes and bring yeah. over the codes and everyone's going to be fighting you. Like, it, I can only imagine the headaches. So you did four years and then you did the four years in med school to get your MD. Now we have six-year programs at McGill. The other good thing is you were the program director that brought the six-year program to McGill. I mean, that that was under your... You, you always said, you know, during your, your, your time as program director, you're the one that brought the six-year program. And Jordan, who was the year above me, he was the first person to go through the six-year program. And he was the last person you chose as program director to be admitted to the program. Then you transferred it to McCool. And McCool, he came Thank in. You. He said, you know what? <laughs> well, he, he said, I need to make this program the best in Canada. What's the first thing he did as a program director? He said... I will admit Wendell to the program. Drops the ball, first decision. <laughs> <laughs> so we've always laughed and joked. This is another joke that was always the time McGill is Michelle would say, hey, listen, I finished with Jordan. I didn't choose you. It was Nick. Nick chose you. Man, and then I would always tell Michelle, hey, listen, if I messed up, you chose me. I, I'm, you your, picked I'm me. your number it's one pick. <laughs> I'm your number one pick overall. Yeah. So... What are your thoughts, Michelle, now on dual degree, single degree, pros, cons? What do you think people should think about when they're debating between the two? Yeah, well, I have to say, probably the way you describe it, it's not probably financially sound to do the six-year program (laughs) 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 if we do it this way. But I think it's the medical degree is very important for our programs. The academic programs, it's very important to have a medical degree because it gives you that extra expertise that is needed. I can explain why. When I started the oncology program at McGill, the residents were only single degree at the time. They learned how to manage the cases, but they learned more the mechanics of it. You know, we do this, this, and that. And I always felt that there is something that was missing. And then I, I personally could see the difference. I cannot prove it scientifically, but you can see the difference when we started to have the dual degree residents the quality of the pre-op and the follow-up and, you know, the attention to details and then being able to recognize the medical complications ahead of time, which helps a lot for the prognosis and the well-being of the patients. And this is, I think, the most important part. Now, if you look at it from a private practice, I mean, I do also now lots of private practice, as you probably know. I mean, probably you don't need it when you're removing four wisdom teeth. I mean, you know, the complication rate is low. You can, everybody like with a dental degree, I'm saying everybody with a dental degree can do it. It's not a big deal. Lots of dentists also are already doing it. But when you're managing oncology patients, when you're managing trauma patients, like multiple trauma patients, or when you're managing other difficult cases, like even pediatric cases, 
This is where there will be a difference between a medical degree and surgeons with a single degree. Not to say that you cannot do all everything with only a single degree, but I think the medical degree will, will give you that way of thinking also. Remember, I don't know if you remember before you did your medical degree, as a dentist, you, all, you, you don't think of a differential diagnosis. And this is something that we developed during residency. We tried to do it also for all the single degree residents that we graduate from all the oral surgery program. I think it's not only McGill, but all the oral surgery programs that are single degree. They teach their residents how to think uh, as of differential diagnosis. You know, you look at something, you have to think of your differential diagnosis, which is something that I think you learn from the medical school. In dentistry, we're always focused to the disease. You know, you look, you see a cavity, you repair the cavity. You don't have to think of a differential diagnosis when you're looking at the cavity. I mean, what can it be else than a cavity? Or when you look at a periodontal <laughs> disease, you know, there is a recession, that's period disease. Well, it could be sometimes something else, but it's very rare. Most of the things are cavity, we treat it, are, you know, hygiene, improving the hygiene, we do it. That's, you know, probably 90% of what the dentist will do. When you go to these lesions, you know, the mucosal lesions, you know, the differential diagnosis and all the other stuff, then this is where I think you need to broaden a bit your knowledge. And especially, again, for us, when you're dealing with patients that are in the ICU, you have to think broadly, you know, what would be the differential diagnosis? The patient has hypertension, let's say, or hypotension, or the patient's going into delirium or other things. Then you have to bring in all your medical knowledge into play. And I think that's very important. So, again... For private practice, it will probably make no difference. But for the institutions and when you're treating bigger cases, it is very important, I think. I think that's a good way of putting it. Like you kind of outlined both sides. Of and Wendell told me that your brother is a medical doctor. So when he talks to you, does he see you as a dentist? Does he see you as a doctor? Does he see you as a surgeon? What does he call you? <laughs> well, he calls me my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's true. I that. <laughs> No, you know what? I mean, me and my brother, we have a very good relation. I think since we're young, I mean, there is one year difference. So lots of people even kind of think that we are twins. We both were interested in the medical field. Obviously, he went into medical school. I did dentistry. But I never felt even when I was a, doing my, med my dental school that there was a difference. You know, we would always discuss things. And he would even tell me just uh, as an anecdote, he said like, You'd study much more than me, you know, in dental school, you, you work, you, you have your lab work, you have to study. In medical school, it seems much easier for me. And he always, he never made me feel that, you know, it's like uh, less important dentistry yeah. or whatever, you know. And obviously, I mean, I did my medical school after and then he always encouraged me, he said, you know, if you like to do it, do it. And we, we really have a good relation. So, uh, yes. yeah, no, it wasn't an issue. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, having done dental school and then done med school afterwards, I personally found dental school much, much harder than medical school. Now, it could be biased because you're older when you're doing medical school. You have all your dental knowledge. You've talked to patients. You've done some minor procedures. So I'm entering medical school as a completely different human being than I was when I entered dental school. But I found dental school a lot of work and late hours and, and as you said, studying, especially if you're trying to be competitive in your class. So I, I would definitely agree with that. It's funny that you mentioned that. It's nice that you have such a collegial relationship because for me, my dad's a family physician. No one in my family or extended family at the time had gone to dental school or I'd never even heard of oral surgery. He thinks one now... sucks. <laughs> Was your dad proud of you when you did dentistry? 
Yeah. So oh, he knew he I was considering medicine or dentistry. Yeah, so he said, look into both. Yeah. yeah. And then he was actually kind of pushing me like, listen, I think you'd love dentistry. And he was kind of saying, do whatever you want, but I think dental school would be good. So then I went to dental school and then I found out about oral surgery. And then I was like, listen, this is definitely the best of everything. This is what I meant to do. So then my sister, she got into medical school and dental school. And it was to the level where both me and my dad both told her, you got to do dental school. Like, don't go to medical school. Like, go to so dental is, school. Is this so, Colette? Colette, exactly. I yeah, didn't my know younger that. sister. Wow. And so she chose dentistry. Yeah. So she chose dentistry over medicine. Wow. And it was funny because we, we were telling her, you should do this. So our, our family became very pro dentistry. Then what happened is Colette got married and she married an ER doctor. Mm-hmm. And now every time my family has a question for my grandparents or my family or one of our kids, we're trying to figure out what's going on. Well, everyone says, oh, we That's have a doctor. real physician <laughs> yeah. in the house. We have David, our brother-in-law. Why don't we ask him? So now I feel like everything was going great for dentistry. And as soon as we had an ER doc enter, it's yeah. like, they're like, oh, wait, there are people that know way more about medicine yeah. than these guys. Yeah. They're like, guys, please step aside. Let us ask him the real question. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's, yeah. that, that's good, Michelle. You, you have a great relationship. Hopefully, hopefully that stays with your brother. So one of the things we wanted to bring up with you is that, you know, you're one of the most easygoing, you know, not even staff, not even attending, just people that we know. Like residents will always say, we love operating with you because, you know, you you keep your calm. You're never outwardly stressed. And it's not so much just in simple cases where things are going well. Like I have seen you in cases where an orthopedic is going hard or going long, or we're worried about if the last case is going to be canceled. I've seen you have canceled cases on you. I've seen you deal with getting bumped, delays, and head and neck oncology. I've seen you deal with a flap failure, arterial thrombosis. I've seen you operate where, you know, an artery was cut that led to some compromise. I've seen you at so many different stages and phases and complications and just all the cases you've seen in residency. And I've, I've legitimately, I can say right now, I've never seen you raise your voice. I've never seen you throw an instrument. I've never seen you yell at a resident or a nurse. I can literally only think of one time in six years that you got mad at us as residents. And that was just based on a miscommunication between us and the ICU. And once we cleared up the miscommunication, you were like, okay, good. He's like, you were like, I was surprised because you guys wouldn't normally do that. So it it sounded weird to me. So what we want to know is how, and I know it's a weird question because we're asking to describe how your personality is the way it is, but. How do you stay calm? How do you avoid raising your voice, getting angry, getting stressed? Or maybe you just don't appear like you're getting stressed. Like what is going on behind the scenes? How are you doing this? Because it's extremely challenging as a resident. And then even as a new surgeon, like Oscar and I, we're new grads. So it's really hard to maintain that composure you have. So how do you do it? Well, I don't know, actually. I guess that is probably part of it uh, is personality. I mean, I'm usually calm. It doesn't mean that I'm not stressed, but try not to kind of show it. And this is also, I learned it from Dr. Bentley, who was one of the chairs at McGill University in oral surgery. I don't know if you met Ken Bentley. Lots of, you know, older oral surgeons would probably recognize the name. I remember him once we were operating and then he he tells me, you know, we had a complication. I think it was bleeding. And then he goes, you know what, Michelle, I hope you learned something. At the end of the case, he was telling me that. I hope you learned something from this case. I said, yeah, I mean, we learned how to manage this complication. So, and they said, no, the most important is you have to learn to stay calm because when you stay calm you know people around you will be calm and you need your residents to be calm around you and you need the nurses around you to be also calm so they can help you if you become stressed you you start yelling at them 
they want to help you and then they don't know how to help you after that because they're going to feel also the stress that you're feeling. So when you're stressed in the OR, you know, try to try to stay calm as possible and then people will be able to help you more. And this is when you need them to help you because, you know, you have a complication. You need people to be helpful around you. And I think I remember that from him. And I, I always repeat that whenever somebody in the OR or whenever we have a, a complication in the OR, I tell the residents, you know, you have to learn how to stay calm. And it's not always easy. I think it depends on the personality. Sometimes I've seen surgeons, I have worked also with surgeons that, you know, they throw instruments, maybe as you said, or they yell and it's their way of manifesting a little bit, but it's fine. I think people are not nasty but it's just that they're, they're probably stressed and this is how they manifest it but i try to stay calm based on probably my personality as we said and on on that experience that i had and that i still remember and i it worked well for me so far i don't know if one day i get <laughs> i'm gonna throw an instrument or something but so far no wonder all the chiefs want to operate with michelle oh <laughs> he's always Maybe. gonna be calm he's always gonna be nice to you guys it sounds like a privilege to operate with him well, it is because, it, you know, if a complication is happening, you're right. I I never felt stressed in your OR ever. Not only from a, because I knew you knew what you were doing and we could handle anything because you could just figure it out. But also you wouldn't make me feel stressed. Meaning if I was struggling, I never felt you were kind of breathing down my neck or trying to rush me or make me feel like the world was going to end if I didn't solve this problem. It was more kind of what you said, which is you're calm. So I'm calm trying to work through this. And if I don't know what to do and I ask you, You'll calmly tell me what to do. So it's funny because you, you said it so well, which is if you're calm, everyone else is calm. And what's funny is you, you're you relying on everyone else in that crucial moment. So if you're not calm and everyone's stressed, you're, it's actually going to be a worse outcome for the patient than if you just stay calm and try and effectively deal with the complication. And that is the best learning environment for residents too. Yeah, definitely. Because when you're stressed, you're not going to be able to learn and you might think that you know the next step i should do this or that but when you're stressed your next step will not be the right thing that you should do so i think i mean if i have a recommendation for always my residents i think maybe i told you that window i mean you have to stay calm as much as you can and it depends on the personality sometimes you know i, I compare sometimes myself to for example dr mccool or in the or he likes to put music in the or i don't like too much music in the or because i like things to be more calm you know when i have music it kind of it's, it gives you the beat up you know and i feel like i need to dance not to operate <laughs> but every person has its own you know thing so you cannot you know impose uh, your way on everybody but at least if you stay calm it's very important it helps everybody yeah no we we like the music Michelle, we like the music. We want to keep the music. No problem. <laughs> wants to dance. <laughs> Oscar, do you guys do you guys play music when you're in the OR with the with the Crescent guys? Yeah. Or is it very person to person? No. So every staff plays music. the The type of music varies from staff to staff, but every all of them play music. Yeah. Oh, okay. I always bring speakers, but I have noticed that for a lot of cases, when I'm working with another surgeon, if I hadn't brought the speakers there would have been no music. Like no oh. one else was bringing speakers so, so the other, and we were deciding who to use. It was oh. always me. So the other guys wouldn't be playing if you weren't there? No, a lot oh. of them said they don't play music, but then I have found that, you know, as long as you play something calm, as Michelle said, everyone's I'm not fine. playing. Everyone's fine. You're playing, you know, chill kind of classic rock music or something like that. So usually it's received pretty well. Okay, so let's move on to our resident reminder topic. So we always try and involve the guests and resident reminder or journal club in some capacity if we can, because 
The listeners love our guest episodes. They want to hear from you. They want you guys to be involved. And also residents. I mean, we were fortunate to learn from you, but all the other residents haven't had that chance. So they can kind of learn something from you as well and learn from your expertise. So our main topic is about premillennial lesions. And whenever Oscar and I are looking for guests, obviously we're looking for people with charisma, people we like, people that have an expertise, people that we, we think can bring something to the podcast. But one thing we 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 really talked about for you and the main reason I wanted to bring you on is that you gave a certain lecture and you've given this lecture at Amos, at CMS, you've given it at the Quebec Association, you've given it to us as residents, and it was on premillennial lesions. And one of the best ways to get on the show is if, if you give a great lecture at a conference or at a webinar, you know, Oscar and I were just like, man, that was one of the best lectures we've ever heard. Yeah, we learned so much. We we need to give this to the broader audience. And that's actually how we got Mark Engelstad on our lecture about mandible fractures is because I listened to his IAMS lecture on mandible fractures. And I just thought, this is the best lecture on mandible fractures I've ever listened to in my entire life. So he came on, he gave a similar lecture, and it's still our number one most listened to episodes. Obviously, other people are agreeing. So we want to talk to you about premillennial lesions. So can you start off by giving us a synopsis of what this talk is about and how it's been received and kind of your approach to giving this lecture? What do you talk about? Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier this presentation that I prepared initially with my colleague, Dr. Adele Cosman, who is an oral medicine specialist. So this is a lecture. Actually, it's very comprehensive about pre-malignant lesions and about cancer. So we go through the different topics. You know, we start by the epidemiology, go through the etiology of malignant lesions of oral cancer, which are basically the same. We discuss the biology of cancer. You know, we discuss, you know, how the genetic alteration will happen, how many genetic alteration you need, how things start to kind of change at the basal layer where the dysplasia will start. We speak about histology, dysplasia, and then we give the clinical presentation what you should look for when you're looking for premalignant lesions. Clinically, I mean, for me to make it very simple, you should look at three things, three colors if you want, the white, the red, and the mixed white and red. So these are basically the premalignant lesions that you would see inside the mouth. Obviously, the oral cancer will have different clinical manifestations, you know, like the non-healing ulcers, the erythroplakia, which is usually could be premalignant or even cancer from the get-go, and the other things that you might see, bone destruction stuff for the clinical presentation of oral cancer. And then the presentation will continue to give also the management, how you would manage these cases, especially the pre-malignant lesions where there is a bit of controversy. I mean, cancer, I wouldn't say it's easy, but you know, the decision is when you have cancer, you either treat if you can treat or it becomes a non-operable disease and then you decide to do palliation. But pre-malignant lesions, it's a little bit more difficult for the clinician to decide like which one you would treat and which one you wouldn't treat. And when you're making these decisions, you want to make sure that you're not under-treating or on the other side, you're not over-treating the patients because you don't want to cut out every leukoplakia that you would see. Leukoplakia, which is for me, is a pre-malignant lesion. Because a white lesion, just to for the audience, a white lesion could be hyperkeratosis. It could be lichen planus. You know, you have to go through your differential diagnosis. So, the idea is you don't want to cut every leukoplakia that you see or every mild dysplasia that you see inside the mouth, but you also want to at least treat the ones that you think that will have a higher potential for malignant transformation and try to help the patient by stopping the disease right there. 
So this is where, you know, there is more controversy. And I think you, ref- you mentioned the presentation that I gave to Amos and to the International Association, and it was based on managing these leukoplakia or premalignant lesions. So it's, it's a topic of, I wouldn't say controversy, but you have to have a good understanding of the lesions to be able to decide which ones are suited for treatment and which ones are suited for observation. I think that's a really important point. And I know you touched on it just briefly there, but so as someone who is in private practice, either as an oral surgeon, as a dentist, any major, major things that they should be aware of when they're going to decide whether they should biopsy something or monitor something? I would recommend, and this is what we I say in all my lectures, when you see a lesion inside the mouth that is, again, white, red, or a mixed white and red, you have to go through your differential diagnosis. So you have to eliminate... Uh, or in your head, you know, you have to, is it hyperkeratosis? Is it lichen planus? Is it uh, candida or what it is? When you go through your differential diagnosis, if you're, you're sure that it's not none of these lesions, and then you're thinking of leukoplakia as a pre-malignant lesion, I would recommend a biopsy because you want to know the degree of dysplasia that is present in that lesion. So for me, all the pre-malignant lesions should be biopsied at least at the initial presentation. So you do the biopsy again here, you have to do it at the right place because you want to target the worst area or the worst clinically appearing area. So let's say you have a white and red lesion, you want probably to biopsy the areas that are more red than white. If you have a big lesion that has different white, you want to go with the thicker ones where you might have more information. So the biopsy at the initial presentation is important. You will know more the histology of what's happening. And then from that point, then you have a, a histological diagnosis. So either dysplasia, you know, mild, moderate, or severe. And this is when you make your decision. What should I do? Should I just observe or should I intervene? Again, it's not the only thing that you look at, the dysplasia, because you have other things that you have to think about because you have to remember that the areas that are most suspicious for malignant transformation in the mouth are the floor of mouth, the lateral tongue, and the oropharynx, which includes the soft palate and the oropharynx if you're looking at the tonsils and other areas, which are probably more in the ENT side, not our oral, if you want, oral surgery side. So if you have a lesion, let's say, on the lateral border of the tongue, that is a mixed lesion, that the biopsy shows, let's say, moderate dysplasia. You have a patient, for example, that is older because with age, the risk of malignant transformation is a little bit higher also. Let's say you have a patient that is non-smoker. Again, I don't know if you uh, remember, Wendell, the non-smokers are at higher risk if they have a pre-malignant lesion than the one that are smokers for malignant transformation. So, For a patient like this, let's say older patient, non-smoker, moderate dysplasia on the lateral border of tongue, I would excise the lesion. If it is a moderate dysplasia, maybe on the attached gingiva, on a younger patient, I would probably tend to observe. So that's why, you know, the decision is difficult because you have to factor in all these things. It's not only like looking at, oh, okay, that's a moderate dysplasia I'm going to treat, or that's a severe dysplasia, severe dysplasia I'm treating for sure, or that one is mild dysplasia and I'm always observing. In general, and you to make it easy, because as I said, it might be sometimes too complicated, I would tend to observe a mild dysplasia unless I have like other things that 
kind of push me to operate or even if the patient wants to have an operation or, you know, want to get rid of a lesion that is stressing him or her. But usually mild dysplasias, I have, I have a tendency to observe. Severe dysplasias and carcinoma in situ, I have a tendency to operate. And then the moderate one is this is where I put in all the other kind of components of the decision and make a decision with the patient on either treating or observing. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a good algorithm. People love algorithms to approach. I remember that's what we would do. Mild, we'd monitor. Severe and above, we'd operate. And then moderate was the ones where we were always basing on a case-by-case basis. I remember one part of your lecture that I really liked was you had kind of the transformation rates of each stage, you know, because patients will often ask, you know, you'll say you have a mild dysplasia, which is a precancer. It could be mild, moderate, severe, or like a a really severe precancer. You're in the mild, but it is a precancer. But they'll always say, okay, you're observing or you want to remove, but like, what is the percentage chance that this could become cancer or transform or get worse? And you had a really nice kind of table and stats behind that. So are you able to share a little bit of those stats and data kind of, what is the transformation rate of a leukoplakia or different dysplasias and kind of what would you counsel the patient on? So there has been reported rates of transformation for the leukoplakias on the, based on the clinical appearance. So usually a, a homogenous leukoplakia, which is the white lesion, either it's a thick white or a thin white, uh, the transformation rate has been quoted to be between 0 and 7%, so very low. Usually we tell the patients less than 7% chances of malignant transformation. And this is why we have a tendency to observe these lesions. The non-homogeneous leukoplakias, the rate of transformation is much higher. So we're quoting between 18 to 47%, obviously depending on what you read in the literature. So it's almost about one in two of these lesions in some reports that have transformed into a cancer. And if you're looking at the erythroplakia alone, the red lesion, then there is a chance of 90% of having already CIS or superficially invasive carcinoma in these lesions from the get-go. So it's already transformed when you see in Nakia. So these are the rates that have been quoted in the literature, and then we use them also as a reference to decide on what would be the best management for these cases. And I think those are good for a reference, but they're also good, like when you're saying, like when a patient asks you, just to provide them that knowledge, it might also help influence the patient on what decision they want to make. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, you can always factor in the other things that we mentioned earlier, and then you make a decision with the patient. Some patients, as I said, their tolerance rate is less for, you know, having something inside the mouth or in their body and they want it removed, even if it's not needed, you know, they just want to get rid of it. I always tell them also sometimes that intervening too much is probably not always the ideal thing to do. So, and that's why I always try to kind of not to push them not to have surgery, but I try to explain things to them because in some reports, we have seen that patients that have been operated multiple times, they might develop more severe cancers. Again, this is also reported articles and there is no, we don't have, we don't have a definitive knowledge of about these things, but we try to operate when it's needed and avoid operation if we don't need it. When you talk about examining a patient, are there any adjuncts, adjuncts that you can use for screening and are any of these actually effective? Yeah, that's a good question. And we get it a lot, especially from dentists, you know, because there has been a big marketing around, you know, using the Valscope, for example, which has been very well publicized. There is also the Tolwidin Blue that has been used in the past. 
I personally don't use anything when I diagnose these lesions. You prob Wendell probably did lots of clinics with us. For me, you know, you look at the lesion, you see the white, the uh, red, and the white or red. When you're looking through your velscope, <laughs> <laughs> when you're looking through your velscope, it's changing your the colors. You know, now you're looking at a gray or, you know, some dark areas. I mean, for me, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you're just changing a color for another color. So the Velscope is not giving you a <laughs> diagnosis. Some people like it. I mean, if if they feel that they see better, you know, if the color is different, fine. But I don't think it's really helpful, at least in my practice. And I don't think in the literature we do have anything for, you know, for these adjunctive aids to help you in the diagnosis. There has been some research, for example, just to be fair, I have used the Velscope, especially in the OR. I haven't used it maybe a lot lately, but I have used it in the past because some studies have shown that if you use the Velscope on your lesion and then you delineate it when you're doing the surgery, if you're going in the OR, and then you delineate the lesion, what you see on the Velscope, it gives you probably better margins. Your margins will have tendency to be safe, than if you just delineate the lesion by your eyes. So I've used it in the past and I think it did give me some good results. You're going to ask me, why did you stop? I stopped probably because now I'm taking a bit wider margins, but it's something that has been reported in the literature. Same thing also for Tolwidin Blue, which has been used to kind of delineate where you want to, to do the biopsy. As I said, you always want to take the biopsy from the worst part of the lesion. So if you put Tolwidin Blue on it, the area that will pick the, the stain, the darker areas, if you want, or the, the areas that are more blue, you would probably want to biopsy in that area and then you'll have a better diagnosis. Again, it has its help. It can help you, but I wouldn't say you can, you should use it all the time or if, or everybody should use it. Yeah. And I have noticed in most lectures, a lot of people say similar answer and, you know, they always stress the importance of the clinical exam is the most important part. And, you know, a proper history taking risk factors, identification of risk factors, and then doing a proper exam, you know, actually looking everywhere and feeling the neck, doing a neck palpation. What is your clinical protocol? How exactly do you examine these patients? I obviously benefited from doing the oncology clinic with you, you know, for six years. So I, I know exactly what your protocol is, but I think it's worth everyone kind of learning that protocol and how you examine patients, especially what you taught me about the importance of having a two by two gauze on the tray ready to use and what you actually use it for. So I think people could learn a lot from that because it's something I yeah. still do to today. Well, I have to say that this I learned from my mentor, Dr. Robert Ort. Shout out to him. He just retired actually this year. It's For me, it's important to mention him also. He always did his exam with a two by two. And I guess uh, lots of fellow probably maybe hearing us uh, in the United States will that have trained with him will probably do the same thing. So first, you need to be thorough in your exam. So you need to have a way of looking at all the parts of the oral cavity. Before you do the oral cavity exam, you have to examine your neck. You know, you palpate the neck. And then when you do the neck palpation, you start from the clavicles up, you know, till you reach the inferior border of the mandible. So you make sure you're covering the whole areas of the neck. Then obviously you're going to do your oral exam. So you have to have a thorough way of examining all the parts of the oral cavity. You probably have seen me, Wendell. I mean, I start always from the right buccal mucosa. I look at the cheek. On the right side, I go to the lower lip, then move to the left side, then go to the upper lower vestibule, upper vestibule. Obviously, when I'm looking at the these areas, then I look at the 
upper gingiva at the palate. I always use also my finger to palpate because sometimes if you're just looking, you might miss some submucosal lesions. Submucosal lesions, you know, most probably will be salivary gland tumors. So they're not squamous cell carcinomas or premalignant lesions, but it's important when you're doing your exam to be able to see if there is or no any masses that are present. And then obviously I will look at the soft palate, look at the oropharynx, and then I would look at the tongue, lateral borders, and then floor of mouth. This is my own way. I mean, you can have uh, your own way of looking at it, but you have to make sure that you're looking at these different parts of the oral cavity. And having your two by two, it's very important because sometimes... And it's, it, yeah. sounds, it sounds ex- exhausting, that protocol. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's really long and intensive. But that whole, exa- everything you said in that protocol, once you've done it in the same way, the same word every time, mm-hmm. that's like a... Three minutes, two minutes, like it's not long. Not even, yeah. It's probably, you know, neck is probably 30 seconds and the oral, it's probably two minutes in total and a minute and a half. As we talk, you know, you can do the exam as I'm talking because it doesn't take too long. And then you put your finger on all these areas. And then when you're examining, sometimes, you know, they have saliva, especially in the lower, the upper vestibule. So, you know, when you have saliva with little bubbles, you know, it shines, you know, your light will shine up. So you have to dry these areas to see what's happening underneath. Otherwise, you might miss some lesions or part of the lesions or whatever. So that's why the importance of the two by two, the importance of the two by two also to dry the lateral border of the tongue to make sure that you're really seeing, especially, you know, the early leukoplakias, which could be sometimes faint. So you need to be able to see them. If you have a glossy area over them, you might miss some of these lesions. So this is the way I do it. This is the way I learned how to do it. And then I keep doing it till now. That's important to to state, like when you have something regimented, you do it over and over again, you get used to doing it. You don't miss any area. You do it in a systemic or specific approach. I think that's really important for people. Exactly. Exactly. This is the, you know, you have to have a way and then stick to it and do it all the time. I even do it, you know, when I'm, I have wisdom teeth patients that come to see me, like consults for wisdom teeth. We call this the opportunistic, opportunistic screening. You probably don't need to look at all these areas, but I still do it. And it's important. You know, sometimes you discover things and then you can help your patients. So why not? I mean, it doesn't take too long. Just do it. You should. I do it for all my patients. Yeah, it's incredibly quick. And to change gears just a little bit on that. So we've spoken a lot about mores and, and cancer. So where do you see the future of oral surgery, oral surgery training and mores in Canada? Well, uh, I don't like to uh, predict uh, (laughs) futures. I mean, I don't think anybody can do. But if you ask me like what I would like to see, obviously I would hope all the Canadian programs could be involved and could do oncology cases. That's my, my, my hope that, that we can sometime or someday in the future see all these Canadian programs as we do orthognatic surgery. You know, all of us do orthognatic, all of us do TMJ surgery or trauma. I hope that we will be able to say that all the Canadian programs are doing head and neck oncology and microvascular reconstruction because it's really part of our specialty. I mean, we are the specialist of the oral cavity of the jaws, and we are the surgical specialists of this. So we should be involved in it. All of us should be involved in it. And it's unfortunate that we are not at this point. Is it going to happen in the near future? Are we going to see it? I don't know. We can hope. Speaking of Moores, will you ever speak to Miller Smith again, or is he dead (laughs) to you? 
<laughs> no man. <laughs> well, Miller He's is a dead. good uh, <laughs> never. <laughs> He's a good friend. I think he probably I mean he explained himself. I don't need to repeat what he said and then his excuse is well received. So not his, not his apologies well received. His excuses yeah, well, well received. Apologies. That was a Sorry, very I mean, politically not... <laughs> correct answer. <laughs> That's awesome. If you don't mind sharing Michelle, I mean you're someone that you've done a lot in your career already, you know, you you're a program director. You started oncology at McGill. You, you operate with residents. You operate with staff now in two-team approach. You've trained fellows, McGill. You own a private practice, as you said. Now you're kind of hitting the point where you're kind of reaping the rewards. You put in the time. You know, you have uh, Nick to do a lot of the, the academic side and, and kind of manage more uh, of the hands-on stuff at the hospital. You know, it was kind of nice for you when I was a Senior, you would just kind of show up on Wednesday and say, hey, guys, uh, what are we doing today? Like, you, you don't have to worry about any of these things anymore. You have other people. Now you have two new recruits, as you said, that are going to help you with tumor board and making sure they're on the ball with these cases. So what are some of your personal goals now? And uh, what are you hoping maybe the next five, 10 years? What are some personal goals of yours? Yeah, well, in the same line, I'm actually now working on getting a program to rehabilitate these oncology patients that we treat. As you know, I mean, our reconstruction is finishing with the free flap and most of these patients are not getting the full rehabilitation. When you do a resection of the oral cavity, you're not only removing bone, but you're removing teeth. You're removing gum. And then if you do not go till the end and rehabilitate the teeth, I mean, the patients are not fully rehabilitated. And it's unfortunate so far, we have lots of our patients that are not getting the full rehabilitation. I am working on, on a committee now with the Quebec ministry to see or to try to build a program where these patients can get a full rehabilitation. It's actually, it has been my objective since 2000. And I think the first submission I did, the first, first proposal I did was in 2012 or 13. I don't remember exactly the date and it didn't go through. And hopefully now it will work because I think it's very important for these patients, for their quality of life, for their well-being to be able to rehabilitate it fully. I'd like, I always give this example and I probably, yeah. No, sorry. Right now in Quebec, mm -hmm. there is no such program. So like your cancer there patients, are, there they are programs. any access to that. So there are some programs that we have two main programs, one at the Shum in Montreal and one in Quebec, but they're not enough. The wait lists are long and not all the patients are getting access to these programs to be able to have the full rehabilitation. And sometimes also they have some financial restrictions where they would do, for example, a denture, but not a fixed denture on implant, where the standard of treatment should be, if possible, not all of them can get it, but if possible, possible to get uh, fixed dentures on implant. This is how they're going to be able to eat and chew like they were before. And I always, this is what I was saying, I always compare to the breast cancer. I mean, now the standard in probably in Quebec for sure, and probably in all Canada is then whenever a person has a breast cancer, they get the breast removed, is to have a full reconstruction, which is paid by the public system. So I always say, why a woman that has a breast cancer, for example, is allowed to, or has the access to have a full breast reconstruction if she has a breast cancer. But if the same woman has an oral cavity cancer, 
and we remove part of her jaw, then she's not allowed or she doesn't have access to have the full rehabilitation. It doesn't make sense. I mean, uh, the teeth are very important. They are a static part of the face and they are also a functional part of the face. So it's not only aesthetic, it's also functional. And I hope, you know, one day we will get something done for these patients, which is very important. So that's on a something that I'm working at. And it, I'll be happy if we can get something done, you know, province-wide and even nationwide to rehabilitate these patients, which will be covered again by the public system. It makes us feel pretty bad about our goals. Yeah, I don't know. We're not even talking about my goals when he's talking about establishing a whole yeah, he's, he's like, he started the cancer where, where treatment your... and it's like, <laughs> and now he wants to start rehabilitation for patients. Yeah, what are your goals? Back. I thought he was going to say, you know, maybe I'd like, I'd always want to live on the lake. I'd like to retire to a Le- cottage yeah, or like to run a half marathon, lose some weight. Yeah, like, run a half marathon, yeah. something <laughs> like that. This guy's like, oh, you know, I just want to, you know, change the lives of everyone I in Canada I just want to provide teeth to all the people that need it once I've done surgery on them. It's like, oh my gosh, we're <laughs> done this interview. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, running the marathon is not a bad goal. Goal. It's it's very good. No. <laughs> it is actually on my list of personal things to do too. <laughs> okay, nice. nice. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, on, on a sadder note, tragically, you know, during your time at McGill, you lost two great oral surgeons in, in actually a short period of time. And, you know, a lot of people do know Dr. Head and Dr. Emery, but for those that don't, can you give us some of the things you learned? And I know you had such a great relationship with both of them and so many people at McGill and in Montreal really, really did. So maybe you could educate the listeners on them a little bit more. Yeah, well, I guess these were two great surgeons that we lost in a very short span. You know, I think if I remember well, Dr. Head, he passed away in 2013 and Dr. Emery in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, the community, the older oral surgeons would for sure know them. Tim Head was program director at McGill. He was involved uh, with the Canadian Association. He was president for some time. He was president of the IT club or committee. He, Dr. Emery, he was well known also with organized dentistry. He was president of the Royal College of Dentists of Canada. And they were both great surgeons, you know, and more than that, they were great persons to be with. You know, I would say in the, they were gentlemen in the real sense of the, uh, of the word. For me, these two persons were like my, if you want, my professional parents, you know, when you have a father and a mother that uh, raise you, these are probably the two that uh, raised me in this profession. And I have lots of respect for them. I always like I always felt that they treated me like their, you know, their protege, maybe somehow. And when you have a father, you know, he always wants you to be always better and even better than him. And this is what I always felt from both of them. You know, when, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, when I spoke to Dr. Head about doing medicine and doing the oncology. He was very, very supportive. He, I even, I mean, as an anecdote at that time, because I was already an oral surgeon, he said, you know what, go do your medical school and then you'll come work in my clinic and the clinic where I work now, which I inherited from them. And then you'll work even at night, you know, which was something very rare to open a clinic at night in the evening, just for me to be able to see patients and then make some income. Because when you're in medical school, obviously you don't have any income. So yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate. It's life. You know, we have to live through it. And I keep very good souvenirs of these two persons. I mean, 
can never forget them. Uh, that's yeah, and, and that's very nice. Like that, you, they were able to shape your career this much because you're doing it now for the other generations, including Wendell here, who speaks so highly of you. And then, any other things? Are there any other shoutouts you would like to give on this podcast? Well, I would like to give a shout out to my uh, colleague and friend, Dr. Uh, Nicholas McCool, for all what he's doing after I I left, let's say, the uh, administrative responsibilities. I didn't leave McGill, but (laughs) I gave him all the headache. (laughs) The poor guy, he had lots of uh, things to go through, and he's still probably going through. Why do you keep looking at me when you say he had a lot to go through? I don't know why you keep looking. You're a good example of that. <laughs> You're the definition yeah, right. of that. You're the definition of problems. <laughs> so yeah, the, and then I'd like also to give a shout out to also all the McGill staff with, that I worked with and that they have supported me. I'd like to mention particularly uh, Tony Shahadi and Julia Pompura, who has been there since I was a resident. They were my teachers and they're still there. It takes lots of dedication. You probably know, guys, now that you started your careers in academia, it takes lots of dedication to to keep that flame going, you know, and then continue uh, like having an interest to come every week or whatever, every two weeks to the hospital, teach the residents being involved and always show interest in that. So really shout out to them. And then shout out obviously to my family, to my wife who has supported me from the beginning, to my kids who are probably now the sense of my life and the meaning of my life, if you want. And then hopefully I will see them growing up as uh, your father, Wendell, saw you growing up and becoming a, a big podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 trust me, my, my dad does not listen to this podcast. No? Oh my God. <laughs> well, actually, actually, no, he did tell me he, he listens to it. I think, I think he starts the episode and he listens until we start like the academic part. Yeah. So I think it's going to be like current events. events. He wants to know what's up with your life. Yeah. Yeah, so he'll do current events, and he'll skip the academic part. He'll recommendations. Skip Resident Reminder Journal Club, oh. and then he'll come back to recommendations. <laughs> so he listens to the beginning and the end. I think that's completely appropriate for him. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> a good use of time. Michelle, we wanted to have you on for a long time. I told you, we chatted about this when, when the podcast first came out. You were like, "What? I don't know what this podcast is. I had to set it up on your phone. You would listen to it on your drive. Actually, I remember. So we had Thursday Oncology Clinic at the Glen. And then we'd have Oscar, our other oncology clinic was at the Montreal General Hospital. So we always had morning clinic, like I don't know, it was 8.30 to 12 and 9 to 12, whatever it was, like tumor board clinic. Then you had 12. And then I think we would start the afternoon at 1.30 or 2. So we always had this like lunch break. So every Thursday, Michelle would take us for sushi. And it was just like, everyone knew like Thursday, if you go to oncology clinic, you're getting sushi. Side note, he's always make fun of me because on the menu, you could order the 9 and the 10, 12 piece, the 14 piece. I think it was a 16. <laughs> And there was a 16 piece, whatever. And all the residents, they'd come and be like, oh, I'll get the nine and I'll have a water or green tea. I was like, yo, I'm hungry. It's a busy day. Give me the 14. Give me the salad. It doesn't (laughs) even surprise me that Wendell would be that resident. (laughs) Yeah, wouldn't surprise me at all. (laughs) Nobody listening to this podcast that knows me is going to be surprised by that at all. 100%. But one of my biggest senses of pride and joy was we finished the clinic. And I would usually take the the metro to, to the Glen Clinic or get a ride or something like that after rounds. I didn't have a parking pass. So then I drove, Michelle gave me a ride to Sushi. So we get in his car and he turns it on and it comes up on the dash, the teeth and titanium. Like he, he was like listening to the episode on the drive. So it started auto playing. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, see, I'm listening. So you listen, you've been a big supporter since day one. You always send you know me funny comments and I appreciate you bringing it up at McGill and keeping it going with the residents, thing like that. 
And I'm just really, really glad we got to, to have you on and Oscar got to meet you better and, and people will get to know you even better. It was a pleasure for sure. Thank you, guys. I think, I mean, I know now that takes lots of time and effort from you guys to do this. It's, it's really appreciated. It's good for the whole community. Keep the good job. And we're proud of both of you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks. See you later, Michelle. Okay, guys. All right, Oscar, that was a great interview. Did you enjoy that as much as I did? I, I did. And honestly, I like kind of like we talked about even during the interview, I like meeting people from your career path and your past because you get to meet a lot of mine because you do work at UFT now, right? You're, you get emerged in the, in the staff that I work with. So it's nice to meet the people that you've talked about a lot, but that I had not had the privilege to meet. And he was he's just super, super nice guy with a ton of knowledge to give. I know. And it is a little bit sad because I meet all of your staff that you've told me so much about, but I meet them in person. Yeah. So you don't get that kind of same interaction. However, we've already had some of your staff on the show and we plan on having others in the future. It just means we got to go to so Montreal. That... <laughs> yeah. That's it for a road trip. Exactly. F1. Yeah, that's why. Next year, June. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> then we'll, we'll definitely get that reaction in the future. So thanks to Michelle for taking the time to come on. He's got a really busy schedule and we really enjoyed talking with him. So Without further ado, let's jump into our next segment, which is Journal Club. All right, Oscar, for Journal Club, we have two articles to discuss. The first one was just kind of a perspectives article that I wanted to bring up just because it really kind of shows the difference in healthcare between Canada and the U.S. and some issues that they're going to be going through or are going through that we don't have to deal with Canada in in the strict sense, but also ties into something we talked about before about giving patient estimates. So... The article is entitled Surprise Billing and No Surprises Act, Considerations for Oral Maxillofacial Surgery. And it's by Tim Wang et al. And basically, what it's talking about is there's this concept in the States called surprise billing. And Oscar, have you heard of this concept before you read this article? So no, this is something that was something completely new to me that I'd really never had to even think about until I read the article. And I'm like, oh, I guess that could be an issue. But yeah, before, before this article, I had never heard of it. Yeah. So before I did my fellowship in the States, I heard 0% of this article. Honestly, even after doing my fellowship and being confused by insurance for a whole year, (laughs) I still didn't know parts of this. So basically for those, I mean, the nice thing about talking about this is all our American listeners are going to know exactly what we're talking about. But for our Canadian listeners, you know, if someone goes to the hospital, they have private insurance. Let's say, for example, it's called Blue Cross Blue Shield. And they can go to a hospital, uh, you know, an emergency room that's known that network is in network. So they have even that term, I had no idea. That's crazy. Yeah, I yeah. know. You have to choose the hospital you go to based on your network. Yeah. So you go to the hospital, you're in network, and then you're gonna, you know, normally you'd see your surgeon and they're in network. And I thought, okay, you see the surgeon, you're going your in network hospital, you're having your procedures, everything's in network. You know your copay, you know your deductibles, you know. And by the way, when I say know your copay, know your deductibles, even that's a nightmare to figure out. But at least theoretically, you're supposed to have, you have access an idea. to information. Okay. You're supposed to have an idea. What I didn't realize is just because your surgeon is in your network, it doesn't mean the anesthesiologist is, doesn't mean the assistant is, doesn't mean the radiologist is. So basically, yeah, like this, everyone that you ever interacted with, and a lot of those, you know, you don't choose, you don't choose your anesthesiologist. You have to ask just there them, when excuse you show me, are you in my network? <laughs> As they're intubating you. Yeah. So if they're not in your network, what happens is you have your surgery and then you get this bill afterwards. And instead of being your in-network rate and your copay and your deductible, the anesthesiologist will give an anesthesia bill. And because that person just happened to be out of your network, which you would have no way of knowing, the bill might be way higher, the deductible might be way higher, the coverage might be way lower, which could result in a surprise bill. Your mm-hmm. bill could be way higher than expected. 
And they said, you know, on average, it could be at least $2,000 more for certain visits just based on this very, very significant. So obviously in Canada, we don't have to deal with because everyone in Canada is in the same network, at least provincially. Sometimes yes. when you travel to other provinces, a little bit difficult, but definitely like, for example, I can go see anyone in Ontario mm-hmm. with my OHIP card and it's covered. I'm in network for everyone in Ontario. And that's not an issue. So they introduced, you know, legislation called the No Surprise Act to combat this. And, you know, it took a long time to actually get in effect, but at least it is something they passed and basically said, you know, you can't just do this out-of-network surprise thing. You have to basically honor their in-network rates. And even though it's not a perfect system and there's still some issues, they create a hotline, they create complaints, and technically people are supposed to be following this. So that aspect is not really related to us. But one thing I thought it tied into really well for us and something we discussed is, we give an estimate. We're mm-hmm. giving estimates to patients. That's our bill. You could say that's our in-network fee, you would say. Mm-hmm. Then you actually go and do the surgery. And I'd say the large majority of times, what you estimate is what happens. It's pretty and close. what you did. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty close. So it's never an issue. But there is a time when you thought it was going to be a, a simple extraction. It ends up being surgical. You mm-hmm. thought it was going to be a partial, bony, more routine thing. It ends up being, oh, it's really unusual. Or you know, there's bleeding. Or there's oral antral communication. All these other things. So. Mm-hmm we're not really able to then start adding codes and increasing the bill, or at least I've never been able to do that. And I think you said that that's the same experience that you've said too. Yeah. And like, technically everyone has the ability to do it, but I would be surprised if any surgeon does actually change it. Like the estimate my patient gets is what they're going to be paying. Like even if something was a lot harder than I expected it to be, I'm not going back and changing that and be like, oh, sorry, I I forgot to put this in. It's not worth it. You're going to look terrible in front of the patient's eyes. So I get how this makes sense, this surprise billing. I'd be really, really irritated if I got that. Exactly. So I think the common consensus amongst everyone is we give estimates, but they're not really estimates. It's kind of like, listen, this is your pre-bill. Like This is what it's going to cost the day of. And it might go down if we don't do as much or things weren't as complicated as we thought, but we're pretty much never able to make it go up. What it means is you got to be really thoughtful when you do your estimates. I definitely remember at the beginning, like last year when I started working, I was really bad at estimating. I would say, oh, this, yeah, this is simple. This is this, and then hundred percent, man. You're things gonna are get way much harder, better. or the t- yeah. And, and I was, and every time I'd be like, man, this was way harder. This took way longer, or I forgot. You know, I had to include this step in the estimate, and I kept like underbilling, underbilling because I kept forgetting these things. But as you said, you get better with that over time. And that's the good thing about having, like, for you probably it was Dan, but for me having the other guys to ask, be like, hey, how do you build this procedure? And at the beginning, I would ask and I'd be like, wow, I would have completely under mm-hmm. and not underbilled. It's just. I wasn't using the correct codes. Yeah, it's not like they're you're forgetting codes. You're no, forgetting things that are exactly yeah. things that should have been included because we were doing that procedure and I just wasn't putting them in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, a good article for people to read. It's just like two pages. I think it really kind of helps explain what's going on in the U.S. and mm-hmm. kind of what they're dealing with, and it also makes you a little bit appreciative of our healthcare. Yes, you know, wait times. We always talk about that, but listen, at least we don't have to worry about surprise billing when you go to the hospital. Oh, it's, it's a no brainer for our patients here, right? Like they don't. They, sometimes people, people don't realize how easy it is here. Definitely. And that's why I tell people, I said, listen, there's a long wait list, but the good news is when you get to the hospital, it's free. Your wallet it's stays covered. in your pocket. Yeah. So yeah. unfortunately, it's a long wait list, but you don't have to worry about what the bill is going to be. Moving on to our next article. This is our main article mm-hmm. for this episode. It's called, Does Grafting the Jumping Gap in Immediately Placed Anterior Implants Using Vestibular Socket Therapy Influence the Labial Bone Thickness? And this is by Alas Scary et al. Mm-hmm. Doing our pre-screening, I liked it because it's about implants. We haven't really done a lot yeah. of journal clubs on implants as yeah. much. I did notice, you know, it's from a bunch of contributors from Egypt. Mm-hmm. 
So a little bit of an international flavor. They're from the Alexandria University, which baller name. I was just going to throw that out there. Like, no, I like Egyptian history. I like. I was you know, in Egypt this year. Yeah, you just went to Egypt. Yeah. I just find Alexandria. I just think it's, I don't know. I think it's a cool name. Maybe you're, it's just you're me, like, what just, university did you go to? I went to Alexandria. It's like, shit, that wins. Yeah. It's like, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's, yeah. it sounds pretty good to me. Didn't love how there was no oral surgeon on this paper, though. Yeah, I did notice that. You did notice that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's dental public health. There's periodontology, oral medicine, oral diagnosis and radiology, yeah, like, which I, I guess the radiology makes sense for maybe two analyzing of them made the sense to me. Two of them made yeah. sense. Yeah, I think the same two made sense to me. Yeah. So it wasn't, so wasn't the greatest pre-screening, but also wasn't the worst. Yeah. And basically what this article was trying to talk about is when you're doing an anterior implant, an anterior immediate implant, That's, I yeah. should say, if you do optimal implant positioning, and we learned this also in Iceland, the implants is actually more palatal. Mm -hmm. It's on the palatal side of the socket. So there's a gap between the implant, the front of the implant, and the buccal wall. And there's all this controversy of should you graft that gap? Or should you just leave it? The blood clot forms, it'll yeah. form bone, everything's fine. And that's a critical decision because it makes a big difference. A lot of studies have reported, and I think this is kind of the common consensus that people follow, is that less than two millimeters of a gap, you just leave it alone, don't do any interventions. Whereas if it's more than two millimeters, I've, I've seen some people say a millimeter and a half, then you do graft it. I'll come out right away and say, listen, I haven't done a ton of anterior implants to the point where I know what my protocol would be, but Oscar... I mean, I would follow that kind of protocol is what I'm saying, because that's what I know. You you work with some clinicians I know that have done a ton of these cases. You maybe have seen them or done them yourself. Like, do you do you know of a current protocol at where you're at? Or and what so, would you say? Yeah, and I'm going to be completely honest too. Like, sure, I've been out a little bit longer than you, but to get interior implants in a practice, it takes a while because the, yeah. the referring dentist have to trust you to get interior implants. Especially for me, when I grow, have a practice of seven other surgeons who've been there a lot longer than me, probably the first case I'm going to get is not going to be an anterior implant. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. I really, I've done delayed anterior implants, but I haven't really done any immediate anterior implants for, so far, or just a couple. So would I say I have a protocol? Not really. The guys do a ton, a lot more than I would. And from what I've seen realistically, most of them are almost always grafting, right? They're almost always grafting that unless it's a very, very small gap, they're pretty much going to be grafting all the time. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty good. So the investigators, their hypothesis was that if you're placing an immediate anterior implant, there'd be no difference in the thickness with or without grafting the jump or grafting the defect. And that's what they wanted to evaluate, grafting that defect or just leaving it for a blood clot. But, but I do but, think the key here is that they're using a specific technique for uh -huh. these immediate implants, right? That It's not just that they're looking at the jumping gap. They're looking at the jumping gap in cases where they're using that VST or the vestibular socket vestibular therapy. Socket therapy. And that's kind of where the article starts yeah. to break down, in my opinion, I, I unfortunately. Agree. I agree. Because up until you mentioned that, it sounded like a great article for a great yeah. question that we all have. I was loving the article at first, and then that hit, and I was like, oh, but you're using a yeah. specific technique here. Mm. So they designed a parallel double-blind randomized controlled trial, and then to be included in the study, had to be a maxillary anterior tooth. With a, a labial bone defect, but with adequate palatal and apical bone, and everyone had to be non-smokers. So that's something to note. So participants were blinded. Blinding of the investigator obviously was not applicable, like the surgeon, but the outcome assessors were blinded to the treatment group. So they weren't told was which you know treatment was done. So that's good. They're trying to blind as many things as they can, which which is which is admirable. And then to measure the labial bone thickness, they're looking at CBCT scans and they're doing it at baseline before the extraction and at the one-year follow-up visit. So they acknowledge this in the limitations, but unfortunately, one-year follow-up, it's not bad for a follow-up. It's not great, though, 
because a lot of resorption can happen after one year. It'd be great if they had one year and then maybe like three years. Yeah, but I, it's still, I didn't think it was terrible either. Like one year is pretty good, but yeah, it could be definitely way better. Yeah, for sure. So as you said, the surgical protocol that they use is very important to think about because they did an atraumatic tooth extraction with peritomes, which I think we all agree with and it's great. Do you use peritomes for your atraumatic extractions? Have you done that before? I have not done it before. I have a bunch of buddies who are perios who are friends and I'm like, I don't know if it works in their hands. Maybe I should give it a shot, but no. Like, honestly, I haven't used them. So I will say I have a peritome set. Yep. I literally only use it for anterior teeth. If you're doing, if it's planning for an, an implant and you want to really preserve any thin bone you have, especially, you know, like a, yeah. an incise that's so broken off at the gum like line. They're phenomenal. Oh, okay, good to know. They're, ama they're amazing. You just, you take the peritome, you take your mallet, you go circumferentially around the entire tooth. You have to be a little yep. patient because you're going you know, deep on the other side, you don't go too fast. And then it just severs everything. And then you'll, you, you just get your uh, elevator, your force, and the thing just you rotate, things comes out and all the bone is perfectly intact because you have to do no buckle, palatal yeah. motion, no buckle. It's really, it's obviously not practical on every tooth, but for your right. atraumatic extraction, I am a huge fan of peritone. Hey, good I think know. you should give it a shot. I'm going to, like, there's no question I will. Yeah, I think the next time you need to do one, I think I think it's really, really good. So they do use that, which I really agree with. But then they do this thing, this vestibular socket therapy. So we won't go into all the details. You kind of have to look at the article. But long story short is if you think of an edential space, they're making an incision above that, kind of at the mucogingival junction. Then they're tunneling down towards where the socket is, the defect is now. And then they can put a graft. But the main thing you have to realize is whether or not they're grafting, they're putting this kind of bone shield with metal tacks over it. So they're recreating like a massive yeah. like buckle, buckle wall. Like that's um, the biggest part of the, of the procedure. Yeah, it's a lot of bone that they're putting there. So if they had done no grafting versus this plus this, I would have been like, okay, great. You're doing grafting the jump plus a kind of a bone shield that they're using versus just no graft. But they're still putting a bone shield, which I would argue you're creating a four wall defect instead of a three wall that you had before. Now you're adding the fourth wall. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if, if you have a four wall defect, that's just like having a socket. Like, yeah, yeah I don't think you need to. I, I, I don't think it's it. to me. I don't think it's really testing the jumping gap, but that's that's just my opinion. Yeah. So then for group two, they did the same intervention regarding the vestibular socket therapy. They just didn't graft between the bone shield and the implant. So unfortunately, we didn't really like the two things they're comparing. Follow up phase, you know, they removed the suture ten days after surgery. They would do a definitive restoration two months postoperatively. And that the one-year follow-up is when they would do the CBCT and compare. Yeah. So they had 22 patients between November and December 2019, which I thought, man, That's in two a lot. months, you had 20. Yeah, I thought it was a lot. That's a lot of immediate anterior implants. In two months, you I, had 22. I almost hopped on a plane to Egypt and started practicing my immediates. Like, I know. Welcome, welcome to Alexandria. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. I couldn't believe that. So they did say post-surgically, the mean bone thickness for group one, which was the bone shield plus the bone graft, was around 2.17 at the crest around three in the middle and 3.75 apically. So really thick, like super, super thick areas. But for group two without a bone graft, pretty much everything was not statistically significantly different at the crestal level. It was only at the mid-level and apical. So one thing I want to ask you, Oscar, is when I read that, I thought, well, the crestal thickness is kind of the most important. You don't really want to have bone loss there. You don't want thinning at the apex or mid-level because it could create a fistula infection and also you could have showing through through the gingiva like the yeah. aesthetic area you could see the implant but if i were to pick an area One where area. i wanted the most thickness i'd probably pick the crest yeah like for sure yeah 
So it wasn't statistically significant there. And then one thing that bothered me in the discussion, I don't know if you picked up on this, Oscar, was, you know, they said our study findings re- revealed significantly increased labial bone thickness after grafting the jumping gap. But then later on, they said, nevertheless, the differences in our study were not statistically significant, which may be due to a small sample size. So I found that they kept kind of waffling between we, this is proving the concept, but then it's also not statistically significant. So you can't have both. You can't have both. And we yeah. talked about this with Simon. You, you can't have both. You're yeah. either significant you can, you or not. You can't say it, no... it looks good, but it doesn't yeah. meet the criteria. No, you can't say that. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, it didn't really meet the criteria. They did acknowledge a lot of limitations. So my problem is you can't really just publish an article and then you're kind of get out of jail free card is you just put the little limitations paragraph saying why the article you know does, isn't valid, doesn't make sense because it's still publishing. You're kind of banking on everyone reading the entire article like we do and reading the limitations, doing a critical appraisal and you know, if you look at the abstract, abstracts don't have these limitations. I'm thinking abstract should have an asterisk and they should have, you know, purpose, methods, results, conclusions, and then limitations. Because if you just read the abstract, you're going to say this is significant. And there are no yeah. limitations. And even if, like, even when you're going through the article on the top of the page, it says grafting the jumping gap in immediate place implants. But that is not this article. This yeah. is grafting the jumping gap in immediate place implants using socket vestibular therapy technique. Yeah. Which is in the same thing. Exactly. I, I, I kind of got the vibe that they were just kind of looking to study more and justify more and publish on this vestibular mm-hmm. socket therapy rather than assess this actual jumping gap as a phenomenon. I, I will say, though, the cases they published, the results look beautiful. They look beautiful, yeah. yeah like, no complaints whatsoever. In the oh, results. they look ridiculously thick. I've yeah. never seen a tooth with so much buckle. Bump. Yeah, like, and like, if you're looking at the clinical picture, I can't tell you which one of the implant is. Like, I'm <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know was... what the implant is, which is the real crown. <laughs> That's always a good sign. Yeah. So, unfortunately... I, not I did my favorite. not, I, yeah, it wasn't my favorite article. I didn't find it as strong. Um, I found it just interesting. Because, I just didn't find it strong evidence article and, and proving the point that it was supposed to be proving. Yeah. And I think this kind of falls into what Simon said of the pre-screening has to be really, really thorough in the sense that they've done a ton of work. They've designed a great study kind of algorithm from, from a conceptual point of view. They've addressed the topic of need. I mean, in the discussion, they reference all these different reviews and articles. And honestly, a lot of those articles sounded more thorough and kind of more appropriate. It's just the design phase of this, like what they actually, the two groups they did were unfortunately not the two groups of interest. So kudos to them for a lot of work and and and, and having this data. But unfortunately for me, I did find it was a little bit disappointing in the end. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right. So that concludes our Journal Club segment. Oscar, let's move into our final segment, Recommendations. All right, Oscar, so now for our final topic, recommendations. What do you have for the audience this time? So I have something different, and I don't even know how I actually stumbled upon it. It's probably because I watched all the shows that, that I could have watched. So we were just searching with Lexi on, on Disney+. Plus, and my recommendation is Under the Banner of Heaven. Okay, and so it's not meant to be religious or political right now, because I know people don't like to talk about that. But the show is about the LDS religion, so the Latter-day Saints religion. I won't go into more detail than that, but I found it a very interesting show not taking it as I'm judging this or judging that. I'm just taking it as I enjoyed the show. I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was really well done and I would definitely watch it again. Oh, that's a strong one. Was it a TV show? Was it a series? Or it's a was series. It a movie? So it's, it's a series. I think there's maybe six episodes and I would say I was interested in the entire show and when the episode would end, I'd want to watch the next one. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's pretty, pretty good. You're on a Disney. I can tell you're you're running out of show because now you're all on Disney well, Plus. That's what I mean. Even I ran, last time, I ran out of Netflix. I ran out of Amazon Prime, so I had to go to the new one. I had to go to Disney Plus. That's so funny. Yeah. You're really running out of content. What's yours right now? 
So mine is from Netflix. I find that sometimes I watch a ton of real life movies or documentaries, drama documentaries, series shows, shows you have to use your brain for, murder mysteries, you know, all these different dramas. Sometimes you just want to watch something brainless and just yeah. enjoy yourself. I love that. You just want to yeah, you don't yeah, want to turn off the brain, sit down, it's been and a enjoy. long week. Yep. And I think nothing does that better as far as the genre goes than action movies. Yeah. An action movie, usually the plot is dumb. The bad guys make no sense. The 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 story arc is just the, kind of the good guys are possibly amazing. Yeah, it's just impossible to believe. But it's fun. It's entertaining. You yep. sit there, you watch it. So I'm going to recommend The Green Man. I'm sure many of our listeners have already kind of watched it. I've seen it. Oh, you've seen it. Okay, awesome. Did you like it too? I did like it. Yeah. Yeah. So Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, a bunch of other famous people. I really like Ryan Gosling. I really enjoy his movies. I previously recommended The Ides of March on the show, actually, which yeah. is a, a Ryan Gosling movie. Yeah. Chris Evans but is pretty cool. funny in this show, in this movie too. His character is good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just brainless entertainment. You want to watch a movie on the weekend and action movie for like action movies on Netflix. So it's included in that. And it's fun. It's just Actually, fun. that might be a good combination. Completely thoughtless, you can just enjoy is your movie. And then mine is kind of heavy. You have to pay attention. So it's <laughs> yeah, yours sounds pretty heavy. Yeah, it's a good it's a good combination, I would say. Yeah, yours sounds pretty deep for yeah. sure. So that would be my recommendation for this episode. And hopefully if people enjoy or don't enjoy it, they can reach out and let us know. We always love hearing from you, as you can tell from this episode. And we love having guests. So if you want to reach out to us, teeth and titanium, OMFS at gmail.com. Thank you to all of you for being loyal listeners. We really enjoy listening to all your feedback and having you guys join us every month. So we really, really appreciate it. And we will see you guys next time. Take care, guys. Bye.